Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Greetings. Thank you for tuning in to the cows. Uh, I hope the program will be constructive. We should have lots of uh, helpful information uh, about racism, what it is, and 
how it works. Uh, as I say consistently with the programs, <coughs> excuse me, if you do not find the information helpful, please uh, invest your time and energy in something else that you think uh, would be helpful to replace racism with justice as soon as possible. Uh, our guest for today's program, Facebook paying dividends, um, just having people uh, on my Facebook group who consistently post uh, constructive information, uh, whether it's interesting books, uh, constructive books, or just links to uh, information that is helpful. Uh, someone posted a link, brand new book uh, coming out talking about uh, the prison industrial complex and uh, how that is inexorably linked to slavery and racism. And uh, if my first response was, you know, I think everybody, or at least a lot of the people that I know, are very well informed about uh, the prison industrial complex and how much that relates to racism. Uh, why do we need another book on prison? Uh, but for some reason, I trusted Facebook. I, um, I checked the book out and uh, just chock full of excellent information and uh, really does a phenomenal job of tying the explosion uh, in prison population across the country uh, to slavery, racism, white supremacy. Uh, our guest, he is a professor of American Studies at the University of Hawaii. Uh, his book, Texas Tough, The Rise of America's Prison Empire. Um, pleasure to have him on the program with us. Uh, you can also check out his website, texastuff.com, it's linked in the description for this program. Just click his name, and it'll take you right to the uh, website. Uh, our guest, uh, Professor Robert Perkinson. Uh, Professor Perkinson, are you with us? I'm with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, being with us. I appreciate it, sir. Um, for folks, I guess, they have not read your book, uh, they're not familiar with your work. Could you give us just you know a little background information on what it is you do and why you wrote this book? Sure, it's a history of and imprisonment, all the way from the first era of unfreedom in American history, slavery, to what sadly has become our own era of unfreedom in American history, mass imprisonment. And it focuses specifically on Texas, which is the most locked down state in the most incarcerated country in the world. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, I want to hop right to it because uh, there's so much material uh, in your book. I'm going to try and share as much of that information with my audience as possible. Um, you are a white man, is that correct? That's right. From the South, actually. My family is all from the South. I mean, that's another way I kind of came into this project because my, well, my dad's side of the family is from Virginia, and my mom's side is from Mississippi. And on my mom's side, you know, there, there aren't too many white liberals in Mississippi. It's a, sort of an endangered species, but they happen to be members of it. And so my grandfather and grandmother in the 50s were sort of speaking out in favor of integration when James Meredith was trying to integrate Ole Miss and during Freedom Summer and so on. And as a consequence, my the Citizens Council kind of ran my grandfather out of Jackson, Mississippi, and they moved down to the coast. And so I grew up with this kind of um, notion that 
however much hatred and intolerance and ignorance might have infused Mississippi's history, because people of, I, I came to believe as a young person that because people of conscience stood up for what was right and stood up for uh, kind of righteousness and equality and justice, that the world was getting better. Um, racism would gradually be fading away. Um, Mississippi would become more like the North, and the promises of the of the Declaration of Independence and the promises of emancipation would finally be fulfilled. But in my, as I came of age as a college student and then in grad student at Yale, by some of the statistics, that wasn't the case. I mean, on the one hand, we've had tremendous progress in civil rights, obviously, culminating with the election of Barack Obama, no small matter, something that my, for most of my grandparents' lives would have been absolutely unfathomable. On the other hand, measures of racial inequality in criminal justice are worse now than they were at the height of Jim Crow segregation. African Americans were going to prison at about four times the rate of whites in 1950, you know, before the March on Washington, before the War on Poverty, before the Civil Rights Act. Um, now they're going to prison at about seven times the rate of whites, so twice. The prison population at, in the middle of the 20th century was 70% white. Now it's 70% non-white. So by some measures, America is dispensing more unequal justice now than it was before Jim Crow. And so I kind of really wanted to figure out why it was that the America my grandparents thought they were helping bring into being um, didn't come about. And uh, that's why I ended up writing this book. Wow. Okay. Um, this program, uh, The Cows, Context of White Supremacy, um, I have unfortunately concluded that we are in a global system of racism, white supremacy. And uh, when I use the term racism uh, or white supremacy, I use those terms interchangeably. And the definition that I use for both racism and white supremacy is as follows. Uh, a global system of people classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Um, do you believe such a system exists, and do you think that definition is accurate? I don't know if I would use exactly that same definition because it sounds like um – it's, it, it sounds a little more uh, a kind of like unified than I, I think in some ways these political formations develop more kind of randomly and imperfectly, but the end result is the same. I mean, so I, I don't know. We could quibble about, and I'm, an, I'm a university professor, so in some ways my job is to quibble about uh, definitions, but I think the results are the same, and, and I think we probably do have quite similar views about how this system came about. I mean, a real riddle for social scientists and political scientists in the last 20 years has been to figure out why is it that the United States has so radically departed from its own history and from all of the other countries that the United States economically and politically is similar to. Um, almost all industrial democracies and for the U.S. for most of its history imprisoned about 0.1% of its population. 
so about 100 out of every 100,000. That rate is now almost 10 times higher in the United States. So we have a higher per capita imprisonment rate than authoritarian states like China or Iran by far. There's no other democracy that has ever incarcerated such a high portion of its citizens. And the rates among specifically black men, but to a lesser extent Latino men, um, are much, much higher than that. You know, we're talking about a, a third of African-American, young African-American men today, if present tense trends continue, can expect to sit, spend time in prison. How is it that that system came about? Um, there's all sorts of people who think it had to do with crime or with restructuring of the economy. Um, what I really found in looking at the carefully at the research for writing my book, Texas Tough, over 200 years, is that really the only way you can explain that is by looking at the history of white supremacy and and the history of race and politics in America. Now, it doesn't mean that people in 1960 sat down and said, oh my God, we have lost on integration and we must figure out how to re-imprison and re-enslave a significant portion of our population. I don't think anyone had that vision in 1960. But, if you, but on the other hand, we have effectively done that. We have effectively, out of the ashes of segregation, built a new system of racial subordination and racial division through the prison system that very profoundly has undone some of the greatest triumphs of the civil rights movement. And so, in effect, we have created a system like the one that you describe in which rights in our society are apportioned unequally and the structures of law and order in the name of protecting equality and justice have actually furthered injustice. Um, and sometimes that's very the way that racism operates in our criminal justice system is rather overt, like racial profiling and the disparities between crack and powder cocaine. Um, other times it's much subtler, uh, like for instance, one, one, of the, one of the rules that, that I look to in kind of thinking about the ways that we've had white supremacist effects, not always with white supremacist intentions, is um, drug, drug laws that were passed in the 80s and 90s in the name of protecting school children. And so all sorts of legislators, white and black, supported these sentencing enhancements for anyone who sold drugs within, say, a mile of a school, because it seems like a good idea, right? You don't want people selling uh, crack or meth to your kid on the way to fifth grade. But what happens when you actually map that out geographically is that in the Bronx or South Central L.A. or South Chicago um, or in the parts of Houston or New Orleans, there is no place on the map that is not within a mile of a school. And so every defendant charged with distributing drugs in what is what tend to be the most dense and predominantly non-white neighborhoods in America are getting sentencing enhancements, whereas if you're dealing meth in rural Nebraska, you get a comparatively lighter penalty. Um, now, it seems pretty clear if you look back at the congressional record that there wasn't intentional, intentional racism in the creating of that bill, but it's had profoundly racist effects. And, you know, and the result of, from all of these laws is that, is that um, African Americans are going to prison in huge numbers. Um, 
and that, you know, uh, 1.5 million African Americans have been disenfranchised, so excluded from the electoral system. So, so we do have a system in place which is similar to the one you, um, the one you describe. What's tricky about trying to figure out how it, what I tried to figure out is how did we get there, um, and how do you reconcile the, how do you reconcile the contradictions of our present moment that we do have, you know, um, we've got increasing rates of uh, interracial marriage. We've seen we've seen legalized segregation for the most part fall apart. We've seen uh, the gradual elevation of people of color to the highest levels of politics and and culture, if not really business. Um, and yet, in these other areas, we've got as extreme racism as we ever had. Um, and that's a and that's a riddle that is not so easy to disentangle. And that's what I kind of try to do in the book. So I don't know. Uh, that's my l- sort of long-winded take on your on your definition. What, what's uh, what's your thinking? Uh, my thinking is that, uh, in my view, the most important thing that you said that I agree with completely, uh, whatever the intent was, the result is a system right. of white supremacy, regardless of whether folks sat down with the intention of doing all this, the end result is that we have it. And, uh, right. yeah, <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> um, yeah, and so how did we get there? I mean, I think we didn't get there because um, of a crime wave, although crime did go up in the 1960s as baby boomers came of age. Um, I don't think we got there because of um, of uh, the kind of restructuring of the labor force, as some scholars have suggested, because, you know, globalization and deunionization happened in a lot of other societies as well. How we got out of here really comes out of civil rights. And what I try to and the backlash against civil rights. And, and I think in a way, to my mind, the reason I wanted to write this book over a long period of history is that I found it's kind of difficult to, when you occupy your own moment in history, to have full clarity about the moment you're in. Um, and so to me, it helped clarify our own moment if we went back and looked at this other vital period and turning point in American history after slavery during Reconstruction. And to me, there's, there are these kind of two pivotal moments that in the book, Texas Tough, I try to compare. Um, one is, okay, you know, the Civil War tears asunder the system of slavery upon which America was built, um, and, and especially in the South. And there was, for a moment, in the late 1860s and the early 1870s, a tremendous flourishing of freedom in American society. African Americans were being elected governor, senator, mayor, uh, public transportation trolley systems were being integrated. Black businesses were being set up. Um, all sorts of uh, black primary and secondary schools were being created with the help of the Freedmen's Bureau across the country. Colleges were being created. I mean, it really was a moment of of great promise. And what happened out of that, as the federal government kind of pulled out its troops that were, and as um, you know, former Confederate whites regained the right to vote, and most importantly, as whites reorganized and created the most effective and systematic terrorist campaign in American history led by the KKK, um, African Americans were pushed back into second-class citizenship, and we got out of that lynching, Jim Crow segregation, and convict leasing that 
that delayed the promises of emancipation for another century. Um, Professor Perkinson? Can what I, I can argue I, is the same thing has happened again. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no problem. No problem. I wanted to uh, – because I felt this was – I really appreciated your thoroughness uh, in this book, and especially you talk about the terrorism that recently freed slaves faced during Reconstruction or after Reconstruction. A key aspect of that, yes, the Ku Klux Klan, but I wanted you to share some of the information that you out in Texas Tough with regards to the Texas Rangers, because sure. they are looked at as Americana and patriots and American heroes, and in your book, you have historians referencing them as practitioners of ethnic cleansing. Yeah, so what I wanted to try to do in the, in the book is, to ha in order to understand how we got here, it helps to really trace the history back to the true roots of, of law enforcement and imprisonment. And typically the story of imprisonment has been a story of kind of well-meaning Christians in the early 18th, I mean, early 19th century creating institutions that were supposed to make people better, and then they gradually kind of got better and better and created the correctional facilities that we have now. That's the kind of standard storyline. The standard storyline of law, law enforcement was that, you know, as cities got bigger, the reformers got together and created these bodies to enforce the laws and bring public safety. And what I found as looking in the South is that really the origins of the disciplinary practices that come to dominate southern prisons were forged not in these reformatory movements but on southern slave plantations. And law enforcement traces its, its roots back really to slave catchers. Um, so the first kind of organized, the first kind of organized patrols and, um, and often uniformed patrols and kind of like official state or organizations that were set up to patrol law and order were really um, slave catching and slave disciplining organizations that all white men were supposed to participate in. And then in Texas, the most exalted law enforcement body in the state um, w traces its roots really back to disciplining slaves on the one hand, but more importantly, clearing the land for white settlements uh, and engaging in ethnic cleansing against Mexicans and and Native Americans, you know, especially um, Comanches. And if you look at the formation of the Texas Rangers, their first job was wiping out Native villages under the command of Stephen Austin himself, the founder of Texas. And really, where they have distinguished themselves throughout the 19th and early 20th century is, is really primarily ethnic cleansing, not, not traditional law enforcement. And so the, the roots of these organizations are deeply embedded in our, in our white supremacist past, and my contention is that they really have not broken from those, from those roots. And Again. you see it with the Texas Rangers that were involved in you know, union busting and anti-civil rights activities all the way up until the 1960s. Mm. Uh, again... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, again, our guest, uh, professor at the University of Hawaii, uh, Professor Robert Perkinson. Um, I, I felt that was very important. Uh, you're the second person to come on the program and talk about the uh, white supremacist legacy of the Texas Rangers, and I hope people are listening closely. And you think about that the next time you go catch a baseball game uh, down in Texas. Right. Um, 
I want well, to. Well, of course, uh, the Texas Rangers were implicated in in all of these narcotics um, roundups in Texas in the '90s. You know, the Tulia debacle, most successfully, in which uh, you know, uh, like a third of all black residents of this little tiny Texas town were rounded up and accused of being crack dealers, all based on the word of one corrupt, probably drug addicted cop. I believe Norm Stamper shared some information with us about that when he was on the program in November. But that, I appreciate that, the continuing legacy of racism, yeah. racism white supremacy. Um, I want to ask you to share also, because um, an exception to the rule, Mr. George Washington Cable, I was ignorant about him until I read your book. I'd like you to share some of the information about him. But before I do, I want to, because you have so much incredible information in this book, I want to give just a little snippet of what's here. This is from page 20, where you said that uh, you were talking about visiting some of the current uh, inmates, and you said that there was one fellow, a self-described white country boy, who used to work as a hospital clerk, reportedly gunned down his father, stepmother, and stepbrother, and then scattered hair and cigarette butts he had collected from black patients so as to pin the crime on, quote-unquote, drug-crazed niggers. This is from page 20, Texas Tough, The Rise of America's Prison Empire. But exception to the rule, can you tell us a little bit about Yeah, yeah, well, to be fair, he didn't get away with that. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, he, he, He got caught and convicted and is on death row in Texas. Right on. Uh, Uh, But he did. It's kind of illustrative that he would think of that even whites recognized the discrimination of law enforcement so much that he thought this would be an effective way for him to get away with a crime. And no doubt others have done the same and gotten away with it. He didn't. Wow. Um, Yeah, I I know that other examples of folks who have uh, attempted uh, similar similar crime, act of racism. Um, but again, an exception to the rule, Mr. Uh, George Washington Cable. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about him? Sure. Well, the first thing you have to kind of understand in order to understand his importance is that um, southern all, all of the southern prison systems faced a kind of crisis in their criminal justice systems after emancipation. Before emancipation, the formal criminal justice apparatus was really set up just for whites who broke the law because almost always African Americans, whether and almost all of them were slaves, were disciplined by their owners. So the state had very little involvement. But all of a sudden with emancipation and the end of the Civil War, all of a sudden all these people who were property suddenly become citizens and they are subject to the regulation of the law rather than the whims of their masters. Now, and and because in the early part of Reconstruction, a lot of the same people who had led their states into the Civil War was, were still in charge, they set up all of these laws to try and keep former slaves working in a subordinate status for their former masters. So they created, all, you know, what all your listeners will know, all the kind of vagrancy statutes, black codes, bonded labor contracts. And so a huge numbers of former slaves suddenly were becoming, were getting arrested 
um, getting criminal convictions, and I went through just like page after page after page of records of people getting long sentences for petty crimes, stealing a pair of shoes, stealing a shirt, a pair of pants, and getting two years, five years, seven years. Um, whereas whites at this time were committing murders at a huge, at a very high rate, the highest rate of homicide in American history after the Civil War, and almost all of them were going free. So this huge, this bumper crop of black felons was being created. Um, not quite as many, it should be said, as the bumper crops of black felons being created by our current regime. And um, there wasn't enough space in the penitentiary for all these people. And so Southern power brokers turned to a loophole in the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, which prohibits slavery, of course, but if you look, there's an exception clause. It, it says accept as punishment for a crime. And so they started re-enslaving these people with felony convictions, many of them former slaves, and selling them, essentially, or leasing them, as the terminology was at the time, to the highest bidder, railroads, uh, coal mining companies, and mostly in Texas, sugar and cotton planters. And um, so a lot of, a lot of the, the kind of robber barons of the New South, the captains of industry and commerce, made their fortunes in the post-Civil War era, um, use, continuing to use unfree labor, prisoners, by the thousands, tens of thousands. Um, the biggest mining companies in the South, the biggest sugar planters in the South, all of them kind of recreated their wealth um, through convict labor, And but it was a horrendous system. And, and it was not nearly as systematic or as large of a system as slavery, but in some narrow ways it was worse because the economic and the economics of slavery were such that there was a strong interest in the master at least keeping their slave well enough fed and cared for to live a long life because that person represented a significant capital investment whereas the contracts for criminals were such that you could just work the person until they dropped dead and then the state would send you a new felon a new young felon from the from the court. So there was very little incentive for you to provide any medical care or even sufficient rations. And, and I estimate that something like 30,000 people perished in this system. And that's probably a pretty dramatic undercount because I wasn't looking at all of the cozy relationships with, with, um, for low-level misdemeanors that sheriffs had going on with planters and so on. Um, so it was a system, it was kind of a new system of uh, slavery in which people were worked from dusk, from dawn to dusk in horrid conditions and dying in droves. One railroad camp I looked at in Texas, you know, um, 18 out of 40 people died within about a month and from malaria and being beaten or shot, trying to escape and so on. Um, it was at four months actually, but now that I look back at my notes. And George Washington Cable was one of the first people who really started speaking out against this. He was a, a, a very famous novelist in the South, kind of not quite as famous as Mark Twain, but f ended up becoming friends with Mark Twain. Um, he, wrote, he came from New Orleans. He wrote all these kind of picturesque novels about life in New Orleans. He had fought for the Confederacy, but started to have his doubts about how the South was leading itself into ruin. And became a, and he got, he did an investigation of the Orleans Parish Prison, which is still a nightmare, and a century and a half later, later, 
and um, became a vociferous critic of convict leasing, and then quite a quite an aggressive critic against white supremacy generally, and for which he was kind of banished from the South, and finally uh, finally had to kind of move to Massachusetts, where he he passed away the rest of his days. Wow, an exception to the rule. Um an exception to the rule. And he was banished for not supporting racism, white supremacy, having the audacity. I mean, yeah, not officially, but he felt there were enough threats and it was uncomfortable enough for his family. And that happened to, and the same thing happened to my grandparents. You know, there was a, a very small minority of white liberals in the South and, and they, um, they were made to feel like traitors. And so a lot of them left. Mm. Wow. Again, uh, our guest, author of Texas Tough, The Rise of America's Prison Empire, uh, Dr. Robert Perkinson, uh, University of Hawaii. Um, I want to read another passage, uh, just, man, incredible read. Uh, but next up, I want you to, I guess, this, this convict leasing system, so people really get an idea of how gruesome this was. Um, but this is from page 207, uh, talking about the uh, prison rodeos. This has come up before on the program. I believe we spoke about this when uh, Mr. Anthony Pryor was on the program. Uh, but on 207, you write that uh, even in the rodeos, a racial hierarchy took center stage. In the early years, only white men competed as cowboys with African Americans and Mexicans relegated to a farcical free-for-all uh, like convict poker in which prisoners sat gambling around a table with an angry bull loose in the arena. The last man seated won a prize. White women only occasionally appeared, usually to sing patriotic carols. Black women, by contrast, could sign up for the sexualizing greased pig sacking contest in which participants hitched up their skirts and rolled around in the mud in pursuit of ornery swine, all to the hooting delight of specters, spectators, free and convict alike. In this way, the Texan prison, Texas prison rodeo exhibited nostalgia for not just the frontier, but the Old South. It brought the minstrel show to the cattle drive, page 207, Texas Tough. Um, you have any thoughts on that passage? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, the rodeo is remembered quite fondly um, by most Texans because it became, um, you know, one of the biggest tourist attractions in the state until it was finally, mainly for legal liability concerns, shut down in the 80s. Um, although I think there still is a there's still an active rodeo that's quite similar in Louisiana at Angola and and I believe in Oklahoma too. But but yeah, it's, so it's kind of remembered fondly and people kind of erase this racial history of it. But it really is a kind of was a spectacle of a gladiatorial spectacle of racial degradation, um, as well as a forum for you know prisoners to compete and have a chance to earn a little bit of money. So they had willing participants because the daily life was so bleak for a prisoner that almost any diversion they would accept, um, but it really, they really were these kind of um, spectacles of, of humiliation for the people who were there. The, the brain, the mastermind of the creation of the rodeo was um, this director of the prison system named Lee Simmons in the 1930s, and he took over after this remarkable period of reform in Texas prisons in which um, a n 
mostly white women liberals, former suffragists who won the right to vote in Texas, kind of took over the Texas prison system in, they, in the 20s, and they tried to break from those slaving roots. They tried to sell off the plantations that formed the basic infrastructure of the Texas penal system and create a kind of hospital, college-type, therapeutic set of institutions in their place, but they were sabotaged by the guards and by, um, by the legislators who cut their budget when they did take over and, and their system didn't work. And the hardliner who came in their wake was Lee Simmons, and he... Um, he was a hard-driving guy who believed in restoring the whip and making prisoners work without pay, uh, primarily by threats of violence. He expanded the system of convict guards, which had always been present in the southern prison systems and persisted all the way into the 1980s, in which some prisoners, mostly whites, though not exclusively, were kind of given better cells or given punks or better meals or privileges in exchange for being enforcers and snitches and, and did you, really full-fledged guards. I'm sorry, yeah. did you say punk? Okay, and can you explain what that is for our listeners, please? Well, there's this kind of sexual economy in prison still, but, but now it's kind of has come to more public attention, and so officers are have, in the, just in recent years, have been trying to kind of stomp some of this out. But, but rape... And sex was really used as a system of control and management in for most of Texas prison history and favored convicts, those who would work as enforcers. So if there was a labor strike, they would be the ones who would they would pass out clubs to these guys and they would go beat the prisoners back to work. Or if somebody mouthed off to an officer or just did got out of line in any way, it was these convict building tenders, as they were called in Texas, who would... Um, do the dirty work for the guards because the southern states never wanted to pay enough money to actually run a prison system professionally with paid staff. Texas still doesn't pay its staff enough to really run a professional prison system. People make the people who run the system make Walmart wages in Texas. But um, one of the ways they compensated these prisoner enforcers, they usually gave them you know better cells, um, they gave them better meals. They had kind of privileges to move about when and when and where they wanted, but they also had kind of first dibs on when when new weak weak seeming or sometimes gay or sometimes effeminate or just young prisoners would come in. They would um, you know have first dibs of getting them as a cellmate, and then they often would kind of like rape and degrade them until they became a kind of um, sex slave and housekeeper, where they would polish the, make the prisoners' bed and iron their uniforms and polish their shoes. and um, So that was, sadly, a fairly well-established practice. Mm. Wow. I, I want you to kind of share how this, uh, I mean, I would even say that there's evidence in your book that white people did sit down and establish a system of white supremacy, and I'll say Exhibit A, the Redeemer Constitution of 1876. You and oh, your yeah, book. There you, there you have it for sure. Okay, can you explain how we have it there, please? Well, I mean, after um, after Reconstruction began to fall apart, there was this moment in Texas history, a pretty unique and mostly forgotten moment, when under the leadership of this governor Davis, Edmund Davis, 
when really a lot of stuff started to change in Texas in the early 1870s. Um, African Americans started voting in great numbers. They started winning elections. Um, the pol a new police force was created instead to, to kind of compete with the Texas Rangers, and it was racially integrated. And it was arresting whites at equal rates to blacks. Um, and, and whites, conservatives, were howling about discrimination and police brutality for the first and only time in Texas history when their crimes were for the first time being targeted by law enforcement instead of just petty property crimes. And that regime was finally driven out of power under force of arms and electorally as whites regained the right to vote. They had been dis disenfranchised for treason, um, but, but under the kind of quite lenient terms of Reconstruction were, were re-granted the right to vote by the early 1870s and re-established power with the help of the, of the first KKK. Um, and, uh, you know, black judges and, and black community organizers were all driven out and often massacred all over the state and all over the South, and white supremacy was restored in this moment that the whites called, white Democrats called, because the Democratic Party was the party of, was the white man's party then, and that kind of switched in the 1960s, as we'll, as we'll talk about later. And they did set up kind of political structures to make sure that, or, or what they hoped would make sure that white supremacy and local rule would continue forever. So that's why we have elected judges in Texas. Um, there were all of these efforts to kind of decentralize the state because whites had the numerical num majority in most Texas counts, counties. Since the Democratic Party, they set up these white-only primaries because you weren't allowed to, to bar blacks explicitly from voting in general elections as a way to restore um, white electoral power. And, yeah, we got a regime of white supremacy that then – and that was quite intentional, although they always claimed that it wasn't. Interestingly, you know, if you go back and look at what now are quite, quite transparently – overt acts of political racism, all of the perpetrators of them were claiming that they had no racist intent at the time, just as much as people claim now that greater penalties for crack cocaine has nothing to do with race or, or, that, the, um, or that the Tea Party movement has nothing to do with race. So in, in, by looking at the words and the actions of those people 100 years ago, I think you really get some clarity about the way that race continues to infuse our politics. Again, our guest, Dr. Robert Perkinson, Context of White Supremacy. Uh, I must say it is incredibly refreshing to speak with a guest, any guest, white or non-white, who is comfortable using the term white supremacy because the evidence just clearly shows it would be the most accurate term to use. Um, wow. Okay. The convict leasing system. Um, I was kind of ignorant about how all of that worked and particularly how gruesome uh, the system was. Like in your book, you, you have statistics uh, from the Tuskegee Institute where between 1880 and 1930, you had 3,220 reported victims of lynching. Uh, over the same time period, you probably had more than 30,000 deaths of black inmates uh, during the convict leasing period of Texas. Can you kind of tell us, you know, about this gruesome system? 
Yeah, well, and that was and that was thirty thousand deaths of all of all prisoners of all types, because Mexican and white prisoners were also being leased. Um, so you know, the prison system then and now was quite brutal for whites and Mexicans too, but it was always more brutal for African Americans. And it was interesting if you go back and look at the records, the way they made that. So they would that you would often find in the records, like if they acquired a new prison property, a new plantation. They would the prison officials would go down and visit, and they would Double say, you know whammy. what, this. They would go back down and say, you know what, this sugar plantation is really muggy. The malaria is really bad here. Um, there's a lot of kind of illness, and it's it's really a brutal place to. It's really a lot more brutal than than a than a prison that we've just acquired in northern or central Texas, where it's a little drier. There's a little more wind, so we'll make that nicer one, the white leased plantation and we'll make the harshest one the black plantation. So they were always quite explicit about that. Or if you go and look at the, they'll also would say things in convict leasing like at a wood chopping camp, because all the, all the transcontinental railroads hired these, contracted with these prisoners to cut, to cut wood to make their railroad ties as they were building the you know, roads of commerce that helped build the, build the country. In that sense, the country in some ways was built by prison labor in the same way that the antebellum America was built by slaves. But the requirement usually was that African Americans would have to produce, say, a cord of wood or a cord and a half of wood a day, whereas whites might be required to produce half a cord or, or three quarters of a cord. So they were usually racially differentiated quotas. Um, and African Americans suffered much higher fatality rates under convict leasing. That's not to say it wasn't bad for whites. It, it was for poor whites, too. You know, and Texas and Southern systems have have always been pretty brutal social systems for anyone at the bottom or t toward the bottom of the of the socioeconomic hierarchy, whether you're white or black. It just so happens that the vast majority of people clustered at the bottom are people of color. Um, so, in that sense, it's a kind of system of economic subordination and a system of entwined with a system of racial subordination, and remains so today. Um, but convict leasing um, did have tremendous fatality rates, and that 30,000 estimate that I have in the book, Texas Tough, is probably an underestimate uh, because I wasn't really dealing with all of the local peonage arrangements that local sheriffs set up. Um, and, and Douglas Blackman's book, uh, he has a new book out that won the Pulitzer Prize last year. Slavery by Another Name. Right, and he deals with that peonage side, and I deal with the more kind of state felony Side, and so the fatality rate might double or even triple if you if you count that other system. But people were worked um, in the summer to the point of heat stroke um, and exhaustion. And you know, really strong people who had a lot of experience working in agriculture might be able to do fine. But you know, city city kids who got sent to the prison system, you know, they might not last a week. Um, the worst were, so they were dying of malaria. If they tried to escape, they were shot down. Um, they died of all sorts of infectious diseases because there was very little hygiene in these communal wooden barracks. Sometimes the prisoners were loaded into boxcars um, that looked like something almost out of the Holocaust as people are, you know, 30 prisoners are loaded into a boxcar with barred windows and rolled out to turpentine camps or wood chopping camps far out from civilization, and some of the worst were in coal mines where you had, you know, huge accidents, sometimes a hundred or more miners killed in, in single accidents in, in um, Alabama and Tennessee. 
so it is a it was a it's a, it's a mostly forgotten history of um, unfree labor and really unspeakable unspeakable brutality and some people at the time really did call it worse worse than slavery because there was just such kind of callous and systemic disregard for for human life and it should be noted uh, should be noted it should be noted that a lot of women a lot of women were sucked into the system too in very small numbers compared to men um but you know you even see the race the racial divisions even starker in the records of female imprisonment because it's a tiny handful of white women who end up in prison in the South. And when they did end up in Texas, they were usually not required to work or they did maybe a little sewing, but they were mostly just kind of locked up or um, and kind of neglected, whereas um, black women were put on to work gangs and sent out to the fields to pick cotton or, or hoe or dig ditches or build roads with less less intense quotas than men but but still work very much like black women would have would have performed under slavery. Double whammy. Wow, I just wanted that was what I was going to say uh that the debasement was especially intense for black inmates. Um you have just some I'm speechless the photographs that you have in the book. Um, can you kind of talk about one in particular? It's a photograph showing uh, some of these inhumane methods of punishment that white officers, white uh, wardens used against black inmates. It looks like there's a black male. He's in a fetal position and he's bound. Uh, I mean, can you can you talk about this this image? I mean, there is a surprisingly rich set of technologies of um, punishment and torture that were devised. Uh, interestingly, many of them surfaced again in the war on terror. Uh, waterboarding was a, was a punishment that northern, inst- northern prisons devised in the 19th century when um, whipping became controversial. They didn't use that in the South because whipping persisted much longer in Texas all the way into the 1940s. Whipping was always the was the predominant form of discipline in the southern prison system, but as that became somewhat more controversial in the populist era and the progressive era, and humanitarians were because whites were also being whipped um, and sometimes whipped to death, that was often quite controversial. Um, and so they increasingly turned to different types of solitary confinement. They were kind of hitching posts where people were hobbled and just tied to uh, to a log or to a stump, as that picture describes. There were um, dark houses or sweat boxes, which were basically like kind of outhouses that um, you would build and you would kind of lock someone in for 12 hours or 24 hours, but sometimes people were put in there for longer. In fact, one of the one of the incidents that I describe in the book from 1913 was a group of a bunch of white officers got especially mad at one group of black inmates for doing some sort of a work strike because they were saying they were being overworked. And so they piled I think 12 of them into one of these sweat boxes that was made for for two people, very small space about the size of a small apartment bathroom. 
and that there w and they left them in there for 48 hours, and there wasn't enough oxygen. And so the only ones there were four air holes, and the only four people who survived were those who happened to be located right where the air holes were, and all of the other all of, all of the others were killed. Later in the 20th century, a whole other series of um, and there are plenty of other other um, stocks and hobbling and um, tying. They they would shackle um, these big spears to people's legs so they couldn't run when they were working far away from somewhere. They would either shackle their feet together or they would they would put a shackle like an ankle bracelet and then there would be long rods extending from the end of it which would trip you if you tried to run so you couldn't escape. Later in the 20th century, the punishments got a little bit more creative once whipping was abolished in the 40s. And then officers seemed to almost delight in the 50s and 60s with coming up with all sorts of peculiar punishments. Um, like, for instance, if you were caught, um, one, one guy I interviewed, one guy I interviewed was caught um, with a watermelon in his cell because he had you know, wanted a little bit of extra food, and so he had smuggled one back to his cell to eat with his celly. And the officers uh, forced him to carry a watermelon around for a month everywhere he went, just as it kind of like rotted and drizzled grime all over his clothes. Another guy got caught stealing a, a steak, and he was forced to eat a whole tray of steaks and continue vomiting it up so he would eat more and more and more. So there were these kind of, and then people were also just like beaten, sometimes beaten to death. So the, there were a real panoply of, of punishments and very little, account, very little accountability or oversight until the 1960s when, you know, for the first and only time in American history, the courts started paying attention to the little people in American society under, under the Warren Court, and that's where we got the Civil Rights Warren rulings, we got all of the civil liberties rulings, we got pro-labor rulings, and we got rulings that allowed prisoners to kind of bring their grievances to the federal court, and all of that now under the under the Rehnquist-Roberts courts, all of that is now gone, and the courts are again, are against, um, are again in the courts of the big people in American society. Double whammy. Wow. Um... One of the things that really stood out, again, this book, um, so thorough, so detailed. Uh, you dug through and, and got archives of uh, prisoners and their own writings, uh, whether they got it published or not. Um, and one of the things that really stood out, um, the white inmates and them talking about their loss of whiteness and manhood. Yeah. Um, you've already talked a lot about how black people had an especially tough time, but for white people, this environment was like a descent into hell, losing their whiteness. Right, and that was really interesting to me that, that it seemed, I mean, we don't have, until the 1960s, we don't have as rich of an archive. The, there aren't as many black voices preserved, partially because the conditions were so much more brutal and because the education system under segregation was so inequitable that there aren't as many African-Americans who were going to prison in these early periods who were kind of literate and inclined to kind of write their memoirs and not as many people inclined to listen to them. Although you can find all sorts of black writing in clemency records, letters to the governor. But yeah, whites wrote this whole series of memoirs under convict leasing. 
And yeah, a lot of times what they to to them in some ways imprisonment even though it wasn't as brutal, not nearly as brutal as it was for African Americans, it was somehow to them even more shocking because even if they were lower class as most of them were, casual laborers in in the system of Jim Crow white supremacy in the South, they had been accustomed to being treated with a kind of minimal level of respect. That's part of that was part of the privilege of of whiteness. That might be all you had if as a poor as a poor tenant farmer in the 1920s. That might be your only mark of respect and distinction is that you were white. And then all of a sudden you came into the prison system and while you still were had pr- white privileges, you were treated in a pretty degrading way too and subjected to stoop labor. You were out working on 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 work gangs, maybe with lower quotas but still exhausting quotas. You still got whipped if you didn't meet the quota. Um, you still had to kind of follow all of these humiliating and depersonalizing rules. Like you, for many years, you weren't allowed to speak in the dining room. Uh, you had to call your. You were given these demeaning nicknames by your officers. You had to tip your hat whenever you came into the presence of an officer, and so on. So they really did, for the first time, experience. You know, and what I came to think of as almost a, a sort of racial passing. They came to experience what it was like to be systematically kind of debased by a, a higher authority, and they they talked about it yeah in terms of their manhood being stripped away, um, and as a totally humiliating experience of slavery. And to imagine that as bad as all of what they described was, to imagine that what blacks were experiencing was even worse. Um, was pretty shocking and those and reading those archives was um i mean you know you sit for hours and hours and hours and you go through these sheafs of pleas by prisoners and it really is after a while kind of kind of heartbreaking i mean i remember coming across coming across letters where people were pleading for mercy and i could tell by the way that the letter had been routed that really nobody had ever re- read it but they were just pouring out their heart talking about the economic circumstances that led them to get convicted, the unfairness of their conviction, the horrendous way they were being treated, the way their infection on their foot had abscessed, and if they didn't get mercy, they were going to have to have their foot amputated. And, um, and, you know, and only 100 years later was someone actually reading this letter for the first time with any care. Uh, Professor Robert Perkinson, author, Texas Tough. The Rise of America's Prison Empire. Um, Exhibit B is coming uh, for evidence that uh, white people from time to time do sit down and explicitly map out how they are going to expand, maintain white supremacy. Um, I would use your book to say that there have been specific times where white people have not only said we're going to use white supremacy to build more prisons, we're going to use white supremacy to win the governor's seat, Sometimes we're going to use white supremacy to even win the presidency of the United States, oh, yeah. uh, specifically Texas uh, examples, uh, George Bush 1 and George Bush 2. Uh, but before I get to them, this is page 306. This will be another example. Um, during his three campaigns for governor, two of them successful, Bill Clements, oil driller extraordinaire and Nixon's former deputy secretary, secretary of defense, played the game both to suppress votes and to attract them. In one contest, 
his secretary of state tried to purge thousands of felons from the voter rolls. On election day, Clements' campaign reportedly posted menacing signs in Dallas's black precincts, warning potential voters they could be imprisoned for various types of voter fraud. That should sound familiar. It does, yeah. (laughs) A lot. To bolster his support among crime-fearing whites, Clements lambasted the Democratic incumbent, Mark White, for releasing hundreds of prisoners and ran a TV ad accusing him of paroling predatory rapists. Another example, I would say. But, yeah, if you could, if you could, if you want to share info on that, that would be sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is actually a good place to kind of lay out what what ultimately is the kind of central argument of the book in that mass imprisonment in the United States really has grown out of the poisonous politics of race in American society in the same way I argue that Jim Crow grew out of a reaction against emancipation and reconstruction. It's a kind of two steps forward for freedom and one step back that has happened at other times in American history. But basically what I think happened is that the, the Democratic Party white supremacist system of control in the South by the 1950s is teetering toward collapse because of the freedom movement that arose under the leadership of Dr. King and others and because the kind of northern states and politicians no longer had so much tolerance for southern Jim Crow because it was embarrassing on the international stage and because the courts for the first time were giving the, the subjugated in American society a hearing. And so by the mid-1960s, Jim Crow segregation collapses. Now, the, the leaders of the, of the segregationist establishment, people like Strom Thurmond, warned in the 1950s, you can go back and look at their speeches in the congressional record, they warned that if, if we get integration of the races, we're going to have a terrifying wave of crime and juvenile delinquency. And therefore, we need to... Well, that's what they warned. And when they were defeated on... What I argue is that when they were defeated on civil rights, they turned to law enforcement to discipline and control this incipient social order that they had feared and fought against. And instead of talking about uh, white man's government, they started talking about law and order. And they continued sometimes talking about states' rights. States' rights rhetoric has really made a comeback. So that happens in the Democratic Party. The, the white supremacist conservative wing of the Democratic Party starts talking about law and order. And if you look back at the, at the statute book and, and congressional, I mean, legislative um, assembly session records, you'll see in Texas, for instance, in 1969, the same year that all of the segregationist statutes were swept from the books, in the 1969 legislative session is the same year that they're authorizing adult prosecution for juveniles, funding the construction of the largest prison in state history, and they begin ramping up penalties for all sorts of um, drug crimes. So now that's so one hand we see a, a retreat from defending segregation to enforcing law and order. In uh, some ways, in a simplistic way of saying it, a, a white conservative said, "Okay, look if." If, if the government is going to force me to allow blacks to move into my neighborhood, it better be the Cosby family. And if it's not the Cosby family, if, like, the young people in that family start wearing baggy clothes or whatever or 
much less dealing drugs or causing any sort of trouble, then I'm in a, then I want to have a lot of police on hand and I want to send those people to prison. And that's essentially what we have done. I mean, there's a quote that I that I found resonant with um, Texas's arch segregationist Senator Joseph Bailey in the in the early 20th century. He said, "Hey, I want to treat I want to treat the Negro fairly." He said, um, "As so long as he behaves himself, and if he doesn't, I want to drive him from this country." And that essentially is what is what um, America has done. We have banished a generation of of African American youth into a kind of gulag of subjugation and a lifetime of second class citizenship. Now, what you were talking about was another piece, is that as the Democratic Party was starting to fracture and reposition, the Republican Party all of a sudden got a bright idea that they got really from George Wallace. And they figured out, hey, this New Deal coalition that that FDR put together and LBJ rode to victory in 1964 that was holding together all these disparate elements in the South, if we start going after the white voters who are angry about civil rights and afraid of crime and urban disorder, we could build a new white white coalition for our party. And uh, Barry Goldwater was the first Republican who really figured that out, and Richard Nixon is the one who rode that Southern strategy, as it's called, to victory. And ever since, the Republican Party from 1964 forward has been the white man's party in America. It's been the party of angry white men who are either explicitly it's been the party of explicit racism but it's also been the the party of just kind of white anxiety and disaffection um and and of course also the party of wealth and they have used the rhetoric of law and order to build a pretty formidable electoral coalition what the reason i said it doesn't mean not everybody who votes for those for richard nixon not everyone who hears richard nixon give a give a speech on on law and order um realizes that he is intentionally kind of creating a, a racially divisive issue that will help him win votes. Some of those people really are genuinely concerned about crime. But he, they have successfully put together a kind of um, racialized strategy of electoral mobilization. And we see echoes of that in the way the Tea Party is reacting to Obama's health care initiative. I mean, we have, quite remarkably, an extremely moderate president on all of the issues who has pursued centrist, a centrist, moderate, often pro-corporate course on everything from banking regulation to health care. And yet, whites are, are able to actually believe that he is kind of involved in some sort of mau-mau communist takeover of America. Um, and that kind of self-delusion that we see in the Tea Party really has its roots in the same way that America dealt with law and order, and it's the same way that Arizona is dealing with immigration, that you have maybe you have um, racial anxieties and anger that gets entwined and mixed up in all sorts of complicated ways with all sorts of other anxieties about unemployment and globalization and immigration and crime. And out of it comes a kind of toxic brew that has poisoned American politics and led to the resurgence of conservatism that has dominated and changed our country over the last 40 years. And that built, again, built the prison nation. Again, uh, our guest, Professor Robert Perkinson, author of Texas Tough. Um, specifically to show 
because a big part of you can see, you can learn a lot about the so-called prison industrial complex by studying, studying the history of uh, prisons in Texas. Um, and you show how this ends up having national, even global implications. Um, I guess if we could tie it up in one person, uh, George W. Bush. Um, can you talk about how you see a lot of the same racism, white supremacy, and a lot of the vestiges of what place uh, the conflict leasing system and all that with the uh, way that we have responded post then uh, Abu Ghraib? Um, can you kind of make a connection between those incidents? Well, you know, it was funny for me as a as a teacher. I had always been teaching um, kind of t in two areas. I taught in criminal justice. And then I taught um, U.S. foreign policy classes, and I always kind of thought of them as different until after 9-11, after the Abu Ghraib scandal, I started finding all of these, the, every aspect of these punishments that were being dished out to supposed terrorists at Guantanamo and Bagram and, and in Abu Ghraib, I had read those same stories in the archives of Texas imprisonment the kind of sexual humiliation, the beatings, the sleep deprivation, um, the, even the waterboarding in other, in other states, um, the, that kind of systematic debasement and, and brutal interrogation. And it seemed to me what had happened is a lot of the law enforcement ethos that Bush and his, and his aides had cultivated on the ground in Texas, the ways they imagined criminal justice, which really was through a presumption of guilt rather than a presumption of innocence, um, a view of unfettered executive authority, so interference by the legislature or the courts, much less human rights organizations, they regarded as a kind of nuisance in Texas prisons to be fought against as they fought successfully against federal court oversight. And they followed, they in a way exported Southern or Texas just, justice abroad, um, and with pretty horrendous, pretty horrendous results. You know, they were, to, and let me just give you some, I mean, we all know, I think, the, the system of justice that the Bush administration set up abroad in which anyone who was labeled a terrorist would have, un, under the first iteration of this system proposed by the Bush administration, they would have no right to counsel, um, they would have no right to a jury trial. They could be imprisoned for life, sometimes without even knowing the charges against them. They could be convicted based on secret evidence. There would be no involvement of the judiciary or the executive branch or international law. It would be co entirely controlled by the U.S. military. People could even be executed with, without even unanimous jury – well, they could be executed with unanimous jury verdicts, but they could be imprisoned for life with non-unanimous jury verdicts. I mean, really kangaroo courts that were set up. But what struck me is that in many ways, Texas's courts are kangaroo courts. Um, Texas has, we all know, the highest rate of execution in the United States, not the biggest death row, so not the harshest juries, really, but they do have the highest rate of carrying death penalty cases all the way to fatal conclusion. And that has to do with a couple of things. Um, one, that the system of, of indigent defense is so incredibly anemic in the state. In Texas, um, there's no public defender system. There's, it's kind of starting to get set up now, but 
until just the last few years, there was absolutely no public defender system. Instead, judges uh, appointed attorneys for indigent defendants, which is most defendants, and they paid them a set amount of money to defend each person, which meant that the economics incentive structure was such that the less you did for your client, the more money you made per hour. So every extra mile you went for your client was money out of your pocket, and that was true for death penalty cases as well. And that's why we got, you know, with drunk attorneys who were falling asleep during their clients' trials, and um, and attorneys unwilling to cha- challenge judges because then they were worried they wouldn't get appointed anymore. And it kind of started to attract the dredges of the legal profession. Of course, there were some people in that system who were heroically for humanitarian and altruistic reasons, trying their damnedest and working very hard, but others who weren't. So on the one hand, you have an incredibly um, inequitable public defender uh, defense system for indigent defendants. You also have elected judges, which is a relic of hostility to the judiciary and the federal government, and do-gooding judges that dates all the way back to the slavery period when masters didn't want anybody interfering with what they did within their demarcated landline. And then the other piece of it is that you have incredibly um, prosecutorial appellate courts in Texas. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals has become in some ways a kind of laughingstock. It's it's been rebuked regularly by the U.S. Supreme Court, which we all know is no bastion of liberalism these days. Um, There's a strong, hard right majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, but the decisions of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals are so outlandish that they have provoked, uh, really, indignation on on the part of the U.S. Supreme Court. Let me just give you some examples. Um, they have, when, when it was discovered that a prosecutor and the judge were sleeping together during a trial, they refused to order a new trial. They twice refused to release a defendant who was proved innocent twice by DNA evidence. Um, they are pursuing the execution of, of a defendant now who has never had the physical evidence from his crime scene te- subjected to DNA testing. And the list kind of goes on and on and on. And so there is... Um, and, they do, and it took the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and stop Texas from executing people who are juveniles or mentally retarded or, um, or insane as well. And so in Texas, there really was this system in place where um, there was very little judicial accountability, very few kind of checks and balances in the, on prosecutors. And it was that kind of ethos of law enforcement first, civil liberty second or last, that the Bush administration took with them. And it was many of the same people. Alberto Gonzalez, for example, who was, who, who was in charge of helping lead the, the clique of White House and Pentagon officials who set up these kangaroo courts in Guantanamo, is the same person who used to sign off on George W. Bush's execution dossiers when he was governor of Texas. And a long piece in The Atlantic a few years ago revealed that he was doing that very unfairly. The Attorney General is supposed to give the governor at that last moment of possible clemency all of the best arguments for the defense and all of the best arguments for the prosecution. But Gonzalez was just leaving out the best arguments for the defense and writing writing memos that encouraged Bush to um, execute in all cases, as he almost always did. did. And Bush often looked, just glanced at them while, during his workouts and approved executions. And that's why um, 
executions under Bush's watch became a kind of assembly line affairs, unlike in other states where there really was very little judicial or executive review. And that's why Texas executes a fair number, or we're quite sure, has executed some innocent people, um, including you know, the person who was profiled famously in The New Yorker recently, Cameron Todd Willingham, who was one of my research subjects. Uh, Professor Perkinson, um, we had a lot of folks that called in, so I want to give them an opportunity to ask questions. Before I hit the phone lines, um, I guess these would be two more uh, exhibits of incidents when I think white people blatantly, sometimes blatantly, sometimes indirectly, appeal to white supremacy um, to motivate white people to action and to their own personal benefit. Uh, the first, this is not in your book, but it is related. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, when he pitched his bid for uh, his first White House run, uh, he goes to Neshoba County and says, I'm state's rights, uh, Neshoba County, where Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman uh, were uh, executed uh, by racist white supremacists who also said, we're state's rights. Uh, that would be right. one. Uh, and number two would be uh, George Bush the first uh, and his run for the White House um, against uh, Michael Dukakis, uh, Willie Horton. Can you explain uh, Willie Horton and his uh, significance to our listeners? Well, it's this, uh, the, the Republicans figured out from Barry Goldwater forward, following the lead of George Wallace, that a good way for them to – it was no longer acceptable in post-civil rights America to overtly make appeals to white supremacy. In fact, many whites – opinion polls suggest would not even even those who did have all sorts of subterranean biases in their own minds would no longer even respond to old-fashioned appeals to white supremacy because they didn't they no longer thought of themselves as racist but the republicans figured out that you could tap in to the even with people who didn't think of themselves as white supremacists you could tap into their racial bias by and you could tap into their racial fears and anxieties by talking about law and order and talking about women not being um, safe on the streets, uh, talking about young people today in, in inner cities, talking about welfare queens, um, driving Cadillacs, as Reagan kind of famously did. And there were all sorts of ways that, in, that they could talk about race without seeming to talk about race, and that they could mobilize conservative, angry white voters by um, talking about affirmative action or now immigration or crime in ways that seemed race neutral but really weren't. And in their, their, often in their secret correspondence, you can see that, they, that the politicians leading this effort actually often were quite explicit about it, but that um, you know, the voters who might have voted for them may or may not have been, depended upon, depended upon the person. And one of the most famous examples, as you point out, one of the most successful was George... Bush the first's um, campaign against um, Michael Dukakis, in which they kind of sorted through all of the all of the records of people being let out of prison in Massachusetts, and they found one sensational case that perfectly fit the kind of demographic they were going for: a black man who was let out on a furlough, which was a long-standing policy in Massachusetts across the United States during this period in under Republican as well as Democratic government, govern, govern, governors, but, but the truth was not what mattered so much as the, the campaign ad. And they put together, which you can watch, you can watch these online or read more about it in the, in the, in the book, um, 
they put on these ads highlighting Willie Horton and saying that, you know, here's, here's, here's what Michael Dukakis is going, does. He lets out black rapists of white women, lets them out of prison, and the kind of subtext there is that, well, there's no subtext, the text there is that, you know, if you want to protect your, if you want to protect your family from menacing urban criminals, then you better vote for a tough, a tough, reliable law enforcement candidate, Bush. And, and lots of um, people responded, lots of white voters responded to that ad. Uh, polls suggest quite favorably, and, it, and people think that it played a pretty important role in his victory. Uh, unless I'm mistaken, uh, reports that I've seen, he was trailing uh, Mr. Dukakis, and uh, Willie Horton changed things dramatically um, in that campaign. I could be incorrect, but uh, yeah, no, I think I think it's regarded as a, it's regarded as one of the it's regarded as a kind of turning point. There are a lot of things in that in that election, but it's regarded as an an important tactical move for him and and Republican candidates across the country in this period realize that you know a, a critical way to solidify their white base of support and the Republican Party is now overwhelmingly a white party in the United States. It's something that really is not discussed in the mainstream media, that it really has become, it has become as white of an organization as the NAACP is, or, or um, MECHA are Mexican American or black organizations. I mean, it, it has at the moment a titular head of an African American guy, and, and they right now are running a fair number of African American candidates, but if you look at the complexion of their of their conventions and the Tea Party, this newest kind of formation of the Republican Party. It's an, it's, an, it's an incredibly white organization and overwhelmingly an upper income and a southern, a southern white organization. Now, over the long term, that de- that's a dying demographic in American history, according to the census, because of immigration, because of uh, migration within the United States, and the United States is not going to be a majority white country forever. But um, for this interval the Republican Party has found that's a good way for them to win elections and they and you know, they may do very well following that same template in the midterm elections coming up. Mm. Now they're tending to talk about immigration and and um they're not tending to talk about crime so much and the reason for that is that the way the Democrats neutralized this attack on civil rights and this attempt by the Republicans to build their white voter base talking about crime, the way Democrats responded to that attack was not by counterattacking, um, but by surrendering and adopting those same policies. And that's what Clinton did kind of most successfully, that he became, he became after he lost the 1992 midterm elections, he became, um, or the 1994 midterm elections, he became a, a law and order president and presided over the, signed the most severe federal crime bills in American history and is responsible for locking up actually more people than any president before or since in a, cer- in a certain way. Um, now, the, the Obama administration thus far has not 
kind of played the politics of crime as, in the same mercenary way that the Clinton administration has. On the other hand, they haven't really made criminal justice reform a priority. Um, and and I, my hope and the hope of some people is that they, is that they will do so, because we do have kind of a – we could conceivably have an opportunity to start turning this, turning this Titanic around – but it's unclear whether whether there will be the leadership to to do so. I want to hit the phone lines to see if folks have some questions. Um, person who called in with a blocked number. If you have a question for Dr. Perkinson, your line is open. Hello. Yes, you can be heard. A blocked number and a blocked voice. Uh, we can hear you. Oh. Oh, you know what? I think that might have been me. I think I might have hit the button when I came in. Oh, okay. Um, I, I was confused about being uh, – I, I, didn't, I didn't know if I was supposed to hit that button or not. Oh, okay. No problem. No problem. Um, is the, I did open a person's lineup with a blocked number, though, um, a, a oh, person different from Dr. Perkinson. Oh, okay. Um, they might be just listening, which is okay. Last Hello? Last call. Yes, male voice that just spoke. Yes, I can hear you. Hi, uh, Dr. Perkinson and uh, Gus. <clears throat> um, Greetings. Yeah, this was an excellent show. Um, excellent show. Uh, Dr. Perkinson, I was going to ask you about um, the rights of uh, um, prisoners. Uh, uh what kind of rights do they have? Like once you get uh, once you get put in prison, um, does the Constitution protect your rights or or no? Excellent question. I mean, the Constitution itself doesn't say too much about that, except in the Bill of Rights, it prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, and you know there are protections that people should be convicted by due process. So it's really up to judges. It has been historically up to judges to decide what that means what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment and what rights prisoners have. And as I was kind of, and I'm glad you asked that question because for most of American history the judicial branch with some exceptions but for the most part and pretty and there's a pretty solid set of precedents for this up until the 1960s judges said, you know what um, people who are convicted of a felony are are dead in the law. They have no more rights that we are due to respect than did a slave um, in the age of Dred Scott. Um, and that was called the hands-off doctrine, because the idea was that the courts should not interfere with the, with the criminal justice system, law enforcement, or, or, and especially prison administrators. And that was up to governors and legislators to supervise, not up to the courts. And, and, you know, for the most part, as I was saying earlier, the, the judicial branch in American history was set up by the framers of the Constitution to be the most conservative branch. It was set up to kind of check the, check the populist impulses of the rabble by having lifetime appointments. And it behaved that way for most of American history, you know, um, allowing corporations to gain greater and greater power, 
um, siding with corporations in almost all instances against unions, dismantling or thwarting many of Roosevelt's attempts to expand the New Deal. And there's one kind of chapter of exception in American history uh, after the appointment of Earl Warren when the Supreme Court, from this interval in the 50s up until the 80s with the expiration of the Burger Court, when the courts regarded workers and women and immigrants and welfare recipients and the poor generally and and subjugated people of color and prisoners as having rights that needed to be respected and sometimes required court order in order to be respected. And so there were a whole series of landmark cases protecting the rights of prisoners, starting with a famous case related to a Nation of Islam prisoner in Illinois in the 1960s. And finally, that led to the federal courts essentially taking over every prison system in the South and a good portion of the prison systems across the United States and subjecting them to kind of judicial consent decrees where they had to you know, have less crowding, they had to build new facilities, they had to offer programming, they had to discontinue physical punishment, they had to have due process for disciplinary hearings, um, they had to kind of rise to the level of kind of basic professionalism. They couldn't have convict guards anymore, and that happened in Texas in a, in a kind of epic case called Ruiz versus Estelle. And the Texas prison system was, <coughs> was quite um, fundamentally transformed as were other southern prison systems. I mean, it, I, I contend in the book, if you kind of read the chapter about this, these civil rights cases, which I argue was really the kind of, um, in a certain sense, it was a kind of final chapter of the civil rights movement when, and the prisoner rights revolution of the 1960s and 70s. I argue they weren't able to successfully dislodge Texas prisons from their slaving foundation, but they did make significant changes. But once the court... Um, by the 1990s, with the ascendancy of the Rehnquist branch of the Supreme Court, and once a solid conservative majority was back in place, the Supreme Court and gradually the federal judiciary generally reverted to its standard and historic posture, which is you know, a bastion of protections for power rather than a final resort for those without power in American society and that's and when we're getting those kind of rulings now with the campaign finance for instance about saying that corporations have all of the same rights of individuals only they have billions of dollars at their disposal and hundreds of employees but and they can't be subjected to any kind of special government regulations but we've also seen gradually from 1996 forward a shutdown of prisoner rights to the courts and right now, there was a piece of legislation called the Prison Litigation Reform Act passed in 1996, signed by Bill Clinton, which essentially reasserted the hands-off doctrine and um, set hurdles, barriers so high that very few prisoner complaints can be heard now by federal judges, and prison authorities are once again allowed to run prisons as they see fit. And and as a result, we no longer really know much about what's going on in prisons. Because the, in some ways, the way that I had so many great stories, I mean, so many kind of compelling and 
sometimes harrowing stories from my book, is that all of the ways that the system was really working all came out in these federal court cases. And now that those are set down, now that those are shut down, we really only have the word of the authorities. Um, so we don't even know what's – we know less about what's going on in our gigantic prison complex in the United States, 2.4 million people held behind bars on any given day, than we did uh, 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, excellent question, uh, 909. Excellent question. Um, person who called in uh, last four digits, 5128. 5128. Uh, your line is open if you have a question for Dr. Uh, Perkinson. Yes, hi, Dr. Perkinson. Hi, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Uh, just a, a really quick question. Um, uh, as you've done the research, and uh, and I, I respect your opinion, um, as a as a black male living in America, um, in your opinion, uh, just given all that you know about the history uh, of of this the system, uh, I guess I'm seeking advice. What would you what would you offer as the the appropriate posture I should be in, given uh, given what you know, I mean, it, it sounds almost as if I'm not really safe leaving my house. That's a great question, um, and you know, I don't really know the answer to it. I know when I was living in, I, w I went to grad school at Yale, and I was working with some New Haven community people on um, precisely this question after uh, a local activist, her son, was shot and killed by the police in a in a kind of standard traffic pull off and. and over and there's a lot of um, you're right that there are a lot of organizations that are going around and saying hey you know what we really need to to make sure that our sons are not getting shot or arrested by the police we have to have kind of training programs for young people to make sure that they don't um, you know, to give them very clear instructions on how they need to behave in the presence of law enforcement, keeping their hands, um, you know, visible at all times. Uh, there was a kid shot for grabbing a Three Musketeers bar that has the shiny wrapper in New York City uh, several years ago because it, it had a flash that looked like metal. So we did some of those, we did some of those trainings in New Haven, you know, that kind of watching yourself when you go out your front door to try to keep yourself safe. Um, I mean, you know, my hope, my hope is that this system of this massive, you know, colossal, colossal and incredibly wasteful system of imprisonment in the United States is not going to last forever. Um, I think if you went back and... What the, the way I kind of console myself is if I, if I imagine if you went back in 1850 and got together a bunch of abolitionists and asked them, you know, how long do you think slavery will really last? And if they really were honest with themselves and looked at the huge numbers of profits that were involved in slavery, um, the, the companies, the politicians that were entwined with slavery, all of the white people who were the only ones who had the right to vote who were implicated in slavery either as owners or drivers or slave patrollers, you would think, wow, it might last another hundred years before we're able to, before we're finally able to overturn this incredibly profitable system. And yet, 15 years later, slavery was dead. 
Um, likewise, if you gather together a bunch of people in, 19, um, you know, integrationists and civil rights activists in 1940 and asked, how long will segregation rule in the South? George Wallace and others were saying it would last forever. You know, they might have thought it would last 30 or 40 more years. And within, within 15 years, legal segregation was dead in America. So I have some hopes that this massive racially discriminatory um, imprisonment complex that we have built in the United States over the past 40 years can be dismantled or can be made to resemble a system more like the prison systems that exist in other countries that are genuinely designed to kind of protect the public and to rehabilitate people who get in trouble rather than to um, warehouse a, a whole generation of young people. Um, but that's going to take, I mean, I, it was a system that was built by politics and it's going to take, a, it's going to take politics to dismantle that. I think it will, you know, it took a civil war to dismantle slavery. It took a freedom movement to dismantle Jim Crow segregation. And I think it will take another freedom movement to dismantle mass imprisonment. Uh, excellent question. Excellent question. Um, person who called in last four digits, 0300. Uh, 0300, your line is open. Thank you, Gus. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen. Quite an interesting show. I hope you can hear me. Uh, I'm going to yeah, ask my question or to make my comment. It appears as though the system never ended in terms of when you look at uh, the 13th Amendment. uh did say that slavery was legal. We acquitted, I mean, duly. You're breaking up a little bit there. You hear me? You hear me yeah, better? Yeah, I can hear you. With a, with a, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm outside, so I'll make my question brief or my comment brief. No, Do you not, with the 13th Amendment uh, stating that slavery uh, it was really never ended, it basically was uh, transferred into the prison system, saying that a person who was duly convicted you know, can be subjected to involuntary servitude, are we? Do you not see that we are headed in that direction in terms of where those rights are going to be further removed from those that are convicted for crime? And what type of freedom movement would it take to? Would it take what has taken place in the past in terms of physical confrontation to end I just wanted to get your thoughts and comments, and thank you. For sure. Your time. I mean, we. Uh, to, that's a good question, and to, to address the first part of it, I think you're right that we have, and that's kind of the point of the book I wrote, Texas Tough, is to argue that, you know, we tend to think of most people anyway, I think the African-American community is smarter about this because they're the community that's being primarily targeted but by and have been primarily harmed by the rise of imprisonment, but... Most people tend to think, if you ask them about prisons, that they are created in order to um, to respond to crime, and that the the research fields and the politics of crime and punishment are quite different from the politics of civil rights. And my contention is that they really are is that they really are entwined inex inextricably, and that we have in indeed with the creation of such severe statutes, 
um, and especially the drug war, that we've locked up so many people that we have undone some of the central victories of the civil rights movement. And, and, and in fact, if you look at all of the ways that a felon <coughs> is treated unequally under the law, they are barred from voting in many instances. They're often banished for life from public housing. They're denied, for certain drug crimes, federal financial aid. Um, they're barred from certain occupations, required to register themselves with authorities for sometimes sex crimes, but all, all sorts of other crimes oftentimes as well. They resemble all of these kind of, this apparatus of legal control are the same sorts of legal structures that were imposed on all African Americans during segregation. And they've been, all of this, this kind of machinery has been dusted off and is now used to control felons who are disproportionately African Americans. So the children of segregation, if they're convicted of a felony, as huge numbers, especially of young African Americans are, are subjected to the same sorts of control that their grandparents were under segregation and that they're, and and their grandparents under segregation were con subjected to some of the controls, not as severe ones, but some of the controls that um, their great-grandparents were under slavery. So there is this kind of, there is this way that history lives in the present, and that uh, the way I think of it sometimes is that the ghosts of slavery are still with us, and, uh, and they are still animating, they're still animate in the present, and in some ways, you know, Jim Crow has, been chased from the free world but has moved behind bars. In terms of how to move away from this, I, I was on a panel recently in New York and we talked about this and it's a really tough, it's a really tough question because a lot of the activists on the ground find that if they go into a legislate, legislature and start talking about, hey, we need to, we need to alleviate this statute or change this law because it's having such a racially discriminatory impact. In some ways, they get less hearing, they get less traction with many legislators than if they just go in and start talking about cost and efficiency and public safety. So a lot of the organizations have kind of shied away from thinking of criminal justice as a civil rights arena. Um, and that might make sense in the short term, but I think it's one of the reasons I wrote this book, Texas Tough, was to try and show people that, look, you're not going to be able to do that forever, that really the criminal justice system can't be separated from the history of, of racial subjugation and civil rights in America. And we really have to think of this as the next challenge for the next challenge of civil rights. And, you know, in some ways American history is both uh, – is both a story of subjugation and inequality, and it's also a story of expanding freedoms, you know, with the American Revolution and then the extension of the franchise to all whites, not just because they own property during the Jacksonian period, uh, then the abolition of slavery, the extension of the franchise to women, then to young people, and we really need to think now about kind of taking the next step toward freedom by dismantling this um, incredibly expensive and wasteful and socially corrosive prison structure that we have now that devours $70 billion a year and really, frankly, according to the best criminological research, does very little to protect the public. Uh, let's see. Someone called in with a blocked number. 
Uh, person who called in with a block number and you have a hand up, your line is open. Can I be heard? I can hear, yeah. All right, thanks for taking my call, Gus. Uh, my question is for your guest that he stated he was uh, he went to Yale, and I was wondering uh, if George Bush and uh, John Kerry went to Yale, and was there a secret society that was linked to white supremacy, the school of uh, Yale? Well, they do have these secret societies. They're just for undergraduates, and I went to graduate school there, um, and... They, I think they, I mean, they are very strange-looking buildings with no windows, and they're kind of creepy, and we always kind of joked about them. I don't, I don't think they, I mean, they, they are a kind of networking organization for very powerful people, just like rotary clubs or elite country clubs, um, but my own sense is that they aren't really anymore, despite their kind of bizarre secrecy and arcane rights, that they're not really, they don't really have any more <coughs> power in American society than um, than any of these kind of elite country clubs or business organizations or the business roundtable. I think in some ways we can get we can get distracted by. Um, by paying attention to little secret organizations, and sometimes it can divert our attention to what's going on right before our eyes. Um, you know, I mean, the, the business roundtable is really, or the Chamber of Commerce, or the National Rifle Association, or the Tea Party Movement, all of these organizations that are not secret, that are um, pursuing policies that exacerbate inequality in America, and they do it right before our eyes, um, I think th these are organizations that are worth holding accountable and subjecting to scrutiny probably more than these secret societies, which I think are mostly um, kind of silly. But I never got invited inside, so who knows? Maybe they, uh, maybe they butcher babies in there. I don't know. But I don't think so. Um, we had uh, another person who called with a question. I have uh, two final ones I want to get in, then I have one more caller. Um, this was a very interesting trend. Not everything is talked about. Um, there are a lot of aspects of history that get buried and uh, just become taboo subjects. Um, this is uh, from page 129 in Texas Tough. Uh, for some bosses, lashing flesh took on a twisted, even sadistic, homoerotic quality when officers wanted to convey special dissatisfaction, they stripped off a convict's clothes and let loose on the naked hide, quote unquote. Other prisoners were made to watch or help pin the naked victim to the ground. After one particularly bloody episode, a manager had other convicts parade him before parade before him to quote unquote smell the bat that's page 129 and then I'm moving forward this is on page 352 uh, one former detainee this is talking about the uh, immigration detention facilities one former detainee who later pled guilty to nothing more than credit card fraud testified in federal court that he was rep repeatedly punched and kicked, paraded naked in front of female guards, cursed as a Muslim bastard, and anally violated 
with a flashlight. Um, there seems to be a consistent trend of this sodomy and homoerotic abuse. Uh, Abner Louima, um, a lot of the pictures from Abu Ghraib. Can you kind of talk about this trend and if you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, because because the part of the stereotype, the kind of post-slavery stereotype that fueled lynching had to do with this kind of like super potency or this hyper-sexualized masculinity myth of black men that therefore when people wanted to subject black men to kind of special degradation, they tended to reach for... Uh, kind of sexual tools, and that's why, you know, so many pageant-like lynchings in the 1890s involved castration um, in ways that, you know, uh, extrajudicial killings of whites typically did not, and why you do get some of these spectacles of sexual degradation that took place in the prison system when guards were, you know, were they usually didn't have to resort to these, to, to this kind of sadism, one, because they might, that sort of stuff, they might get in trouble with their superiors if it was too outlandish. And one, they had so many tools of degradation at their disposal and so much power that most people never challenged them. But, but periodically, when they, really got, um, when they really got going or in isolated units, you do get these kind of spectacles of, of degradation that, that went on. And of course, we saw this again after 9-11 when the stereotype of Muslim men as being, um, you know, as being, um, having incredibly conservative notions of male masculinity and being repressed sexually and so on, that a lot of the interrogation tactics involved sexual humiliation that they thought would be especially trying for Muslim men um, and therefore would kind of break their spirits faster and lead them to confess, even though we now know that most of the people subjected to this sort of humiliation didn't have anything to confess. And so you got at Guantanamo, for instance, female interrogators smearing um, substance that looked like blood onto the, the face or hands of a detainee telling them it was menstrual blood, um, you know, flirting with them as well as stripping them naked and subjecting them to, uh, you know, forcing them to engage in, engage in kind of uh, homoerotic looking circus-like conduct. Um, so there is, there is that, I think there is that strain of racial, of sexualized racial debasement that runs from the late 19th century up through the present. Another strain is the, is the victimization of black women for the kind of base pleasure of of more powerful white men and of course that was a you know a, a central component of slavery but if you look through the archives of black women imprisonment and still there remains a very strong current of sexual victimization by by guards which has you know improved somewhat in recent years um, partially because DNA Evidence has allowed some women to be able to prove it if they can save a little bit of of sperm from their victimizer they can whereas no one would believe them before or no one would care 
if they're able to get that mailed off to an attorney, they can often get a conviction in a way that they wouldn't have been able to in earlier eras. So, um, and that's certainly a strain. If you look all through the history of the women's, in, women's incarceration in Texas, um, sexual liaisons between white male guards and female prisoners is a, is a pretty important theme. Uh, he had Texas Tough has information on that. We just, I mean, it's only so much time. Um, I have one more question, and then I'm going to get uh, last caller. Um, this is not in the book, but it's relative. Uh, Dr. Perkinson, he has a, a website devoted to this book, TexasTough.com. It's linked in the description for this program. If you click his name, it'll take you to the site. He has uh, recent different articles and uh, other interviews that he's done about this pro about this book um in one of your more recent articles uh april 10th 2010 uh you talk about the texas board of education uh they recently voted to eliminate a term uh from the list of words that school children have to master can you tell them what word they eliminated and why that's relevant to this discussion it's, ast it's astonishingly they they eliminated the word justice from a list of citizenship virtues that kindergartners are supposed to kind of understand. And they also eliminated, um, they also eliminated the term, I think, sharing, sharing with others that they regarded as a kind of liberal educators spreading socialist ideas among the youth. Um, I mean, there's this, there's this group of far right-wing Tea Party type uh, kind of Christian jihadists who have taken over the Texas Board of Education and in some other southern and, and near southern jurisdictions and are kind of um, really kind of pursuing this kind of Taliban style theocratic education but Christian instead of Muslim inside the United States and in Texas they've done it's such a big state and has such influence with textbooks nationwide that it could have it could have a significant impact on what everyone is learning. It's, it's anti-scientific in that it's, um, you know, attacking the cornerstone of basic. It's not. A, it tries to prohibit teachers from sharing the facts of basic biology because evolution, because evolution is so fundamental to the ways we teach biology and DNA and everything else that they, they can't really be separated. So it's trying to shut down the teaching of evolution. It's trying to re, they're trying to rewrite American history such that you know, slavery is taught as, um, is really being the, the old states' rights canard of slavery rather than the Civil War being about, uh, of the Civil War rather than the Civil War being about what it really was about, slavery, that everyone knew at the time and, and all legitimate historians have always known. Um, they're trying to kind of fictionalize the, <coughs> the, the kind of theocratic orientation of the founders and on and on and on, there's this real effort to rewrite American history to be the sort of history that people were taught in the 1920s at the height of segregation, when American history is a simple story of, you know, white, freedom-loving pioneers heroically working their way across the continent and leading the world toward progress and betterment and you know, conquest and genocide are little discussed or just are just kind of subchapters and slaver, slavery is a little exception. Um, no, no reputable historians 
support this kind of point of view, and the academic establishment and the educator establishment is quite aghast, but it's it's symptomatic of how much confidence the far right has in America, and that's a that's a it's a peculiar artifact of current American politics that the far far right has so much confidence. We've got people like you know Glenn Beck and other real real extremists spouting their views with very little connection to the facts on you know major television networks and there's really no equivalent on the left those with with far left wing views that might at all be considered equivalent to Glenn Beck are relegated to little internet radio stations and small um small online publications and you know and little clubs there's no there's no there's no noam chomsky or or um louis farrakhan having 30 million listeners on a radio or uh or a television program in the united states and i think that the fact that we have allowed or that we have a system in place that allows these far right views to gain legitimacy and only kind of moderate centrist left views has really kind of distorted the ways that um, our political debates are unfolding with so little basis in the facts. And we see that distorting the way we're dealing with with uh, global warming and the way we're dealing with education and all sorts of other, and healthcare and all sorts of other issues. Uh, Sonny, if you have a question for Dr. Perkinson, your line should be open. Yes. Can I be heard? Okay, Dr. Parkinson, um, I have been a victim of the homoerotic abuse from uh, uh, suspects of racism, white supremacy, and the uniform of police officers. And I've been listening to what you've been saying about the facts, most specifically and importantly, the facts about what white people have done to black people over the centuries. And no doubt will continue to do to them. Um, I want want to know, based on uh, the evidence, that if white people were to face a death sentence for committing these crimes against black people, should that be a a possible avenue to pursue? I want to know if this would be yes or no, and why not? Or why should it be? Well, I mean, if we're going to have the death penalty, then certainly, then certainly, um, subjecting you know law, law enforcement and and military people or and others who, in their official capacities, carry out far greater injustices than against greater numbers of people than the worst kind of low-level street criminal is something that ought to be considered. I mean, I've I've joked sometimes that if we had capital punishment for the sorts of for the derivatives traders who brought down the whole world with the banking crisis or for the executives of Enron um, maybe in that case the death penalty really would work as a deterrent against those sorts of people um, sadly in reality I mean that's a, that uh, it's a it's a good kind of rhetorical position to have but sadly the death penalty is just so is so kind of broken in the way that it actually functions that I don't know if it would really help things out that much, although maybe it would help 
by by um, sending more white collar criminals or official criminals to death row, maybe we would start to get better conditions and better defense attorneys for those who are on there for other crimes. So, so yeah, it's not a it's not necessarily a bad idea. So you're saying that it should be implemented into the law. Well, I I I think we'd be better off getting rid of the I think we would be better off as a society getting rid of the death penalty generally. But if we are going to have the death penalty, then it ought to be applied fairly. And that means on the one hand, most obviously, everybody who is accused of a capital crime or any crime for that matter should have a really strong robust defense so that we have a really adversarial criminal justice system. That would lead to many fewer people being on death row and make it much, more, much, much less likely that innocent people would be executed. On the other hand, it ought to be fair in that if we're going to execute somebody for killing one person in a, a botched armed robbery of a convenience store, then why shouldn't we be able to execute the chief executive of the Merck Corporation who intentionally hid the effects of Vioxx that led possibly to, you know, thousands and thousands of deaths and continued selling that and promoting that product and minimizing its risks even when its association with, with um, premature deaths became widely known. Um, so, yeah, I think if we're going to have the death penalty, it should be applied fairly, and that means applied fairly to poor defendants. They should have more protection, and we ought to go against the people like the, the executives of British Petroleum who, are, who have created this cataclysm in the Gulf. Right. The uh, white people who are in charge of the, the rape and murder, the premeditated rape and murder of black people, uh, based on the persons who are giving and sentencing people to death penalties like white people who do that to black people and black people who are sentenced based on uh, crimes committed like stealing candy bars or maybe even robbing a bank. Who is more premeditatively responsible and who is not? Yeah, and I agree with you. There should be harsher penalties for people who carry out egregious misconduct in their official duties, people who are supposed to be trained than against kind of low-level street criminals. So, yeah, I agree. You know, soldiers who are involved in horrible human rights abuses, you know, gang rape and, and homicides and torturing to death of prisoners, as has happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, they and their commanders ought to be held to a higher standard and ought to be punished just as severely as someone who gets caught and con convicted of a sex crime as a civilian. And likewise, police who engage in kind of torture, sexual torture, or sodomy, or, or homicide of, of an inmate, um, yeah, they ought to be punished to the full extent of the law, every bit as much, if not more, than the kind of pedestrian people who are generally punished for those crimes. Of course, as your caller knows, that's not typically the case. In, instead, those people tend to get lighter punishments, they get reprimanded, they get fired, they might spend a little bit of time in jail, um, you know, including, and, and oftentimes they don't get punished at all. It's very rare that prosecutors, for instance, even if they, 
even if they send someone to prison and ruin their entire lives, they might send an innocent person to prison for 40 years because they suppressed exculpatory evidence. Very rare that that prosecutor faces any kind of professional, much less criminal sanction, and that's wrong. Right, so I guess the bottom line would be, are white people really going to police other white people and to stop practicing racism, white supremacy against black people? How do, how do white people police white people? Well, by having a more democratic, genuinely democratic society so that the people who are holding the levers of power are not just white people, so that it's not, it's not uh, white people policing white people, but it's, it's society and a genuinely democratic government policing all people um, would be a good way to start. Now, now, actually, this ties into a kind of current of thought that I think is, is worth remarking upon as we kind of close this up. And it's something I started to think of as I was writing this book, Texas Tough. Um, and I, I talk a little bit more about this in the book. But there, there is this strain of thinking, and it dates all the – if you go back and look at black newspapers in the 20s, and it certainly was a strain of feminist thought in the 70s that the way to achieve justice is to call for greater punishments um, of a certain type that – for crimes that um, – cause harm in our community. And so if you go back and look in the 1920s, all sorts of black newspapers are saying, we want more police because, and we want criminal prosecution against the whites who are causing depredations in our communities. And women mobilized in the 1970s to have greater punishment for domestic violence and for rape. So there has been a kind of civil rights strategy of calling for more punishments. Um, for those who kind of commit those sorts of crimes. And I think that it makes sense in a certain sense, but I, it, can also be, it can also be dangerous. Um, I think what we really need to be searching for is a society that's not more punitive, even if it's more justly punitive, but a society that's less punitive, a society that tries to, pre to, to prevent crime and protect the public, not by locking more and more people up, but by providing more and more opportunity, um, not by kind of expressing our anger, but by kind of expressing our compassion. And I would much rather us have a society in which, um, you know, more people had job and educational opportunities and many fewer people of all hues, especially people of color, but also whites were going to prison. I think there's, there's too many people in prison now of all types. Um, so I, I'm... I'm um, Sometimes I worry about uh, human rights organizations that call for greater punishment. Sometimes that's required. Obviously, when people are committing crimes with total impunity, then the, the strong fist of the law needs to be applied. But there are, there are consequences sometimes to, to all of the domestic violence legislation that requires mandatory arrest and so on. In certain cases, that's, that's prevented and helped women gain traction and prevented violence. In other cases, it's led to greater incarceration and longer rap sheets. And, you know, women are sometimes subjected to those restrictions as well. Likewise, hate crime legislation, you know, if people think that's only going to be used against whites committing hate crimes against blacks, um, they're probably mistaken. And it can also lead to, to greater penalties for you know, anybody who gets in a fight and ha happens to say something that can be construed as racist, and that could mean it could be a person of color who says, says something 
that could be construed as racist uh, against a white person too. So those sort of statutes, I think, I think we should be skeptical of anything that calls for more punishment, and we should be, you know, looking to achieve justice to the extent that we can in other ways. Groovy. I want to uh, hop in. Um, thank everybody for uh, sharing their time, um, Dr. Perkinson. Thank you for uh, sharing a bit of your, uh, your Sunday afternoon. Um, very much appreciated. Uh, the thoroughness of the book and your attention to detail. I took a lot of notes and uh, we'll be looking for other sources, some of the ones that you cited, uh, to do some additional reading. Uh, we'll check Great. the blog, texastuff.com, and the book, Texas Tough, The Rise of America's Prison Empire, Dr. Robert Perkinson. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you, sir. You too. Uh, context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade, um, not sure. Uh, folks felt the uh, information was constructive, but, uh, you know, I feel like I learned quite a bit reading the book, and uh, hopefully he shared some of the information that I saw uh, in the book that I read in the book. Uh, hopefully people who listened in found it constructive. I do want to make sure I read that passage one more time just to make sure people didn't miss that. Uh, this is from page 129. Uh, when officers wanted to convey special dissatisfaction. They stripped off a convict's clothes and let loose on the naked hide. Other prisoners were made to watch or help pin the naked victim to the ground. After one particularly bloody episode, a manager had other convicts parade before him to, quote, unquote, smell the bat. Page 129, footnoted the whole nine from uh, Texas Tough. White people have incredible access to information. Um, I do want to point out, uh, I strongly suspect uh, Dr. Perkinson, uh, can the folks that are on the line be uh, quiet? I did open lines up so people can share their thoughts briefly, but uh, there's... Uh, a lot of background noise. Um, yeah, Dr. Perkinson, I, I do think he shared constructive information on the program. Uh, I also suspect that he practiced racism, white supremacy, and I especially wanted to make sure I did not forget when he gave the line about white people, uh, racist white supremacists, restructuring uh, during the so-called or after the so-called civil rights movement so that if any black person was going to move in next to them, they would have to be like the Cosbys. Um, I don't even think that's accurate because white people who practice racism, white supremacy, mistreat non-white people. It doesn't matter if you are, quote unquote, like the Cosbys. Uh, in fact, you can go watch Angel Heart with Lisa Bonet and that might give you a good indication of how white people feel about the Cosbys. Uh, Angel Heart, Lisa Bonet, it came out uh, when the Cosby show was, you know, the greatest television show in the history of the universe. Angel Heart, Lisa Bonet, 1987. Uh, and you can see how white people feel about the Cosbys. Uh, I was reminded of Dr. Welsing's lectures because she frequently uh, reminds folks that uh, Bill Cosby's son, uh, son executed uh, some rumors that he was going to meet a white person, a little murky, but that could be a cowbell ring uh, on top of that. And I believe even Bill Cosby uh, has 
public examples where it looks like he was mistreated because he was not white. So uh, I did want to point that example out. Um, but I do think he had some constructive information, perhaps. Uh, I also wanted to share, um, loyal listener, um, that'll be my legacy from the cows, Gus T. Renegade. Uh, he encouraged other non-white people to reference themselves as misanthropes. Uh, non-white victim, she was saying, uh, commenting on how much time and energy non-white people invest in birthday parties for their children. And uh, I don't know, uh, under the system of white supremacy where non-white people are being locked up and sodomized on a regular basis, uh, maybe we could invest our time and energy uh, in something a little more constructive other than, you know, massive outings to Chuck E. Cheese or wherever else we're going to, uh, to celebrate. But I did think that was a great point. I wouldn't have thought of that because I don't have offspring. Um, yeah, I got to read that again. And the last thing I wanted to say before uh, bringing folks on, make sure I uh, promote everybody's upcoming broadcasts, uh, Cree7. Support her blog first and foremost, Cree7.wordpress.com. Uh, again, Cree7.wordpress.com. Uh, she has a show coming up uh, on June 13th. Uh, June 13th, she will have... Uh, Dr. William Darity, he'll be making his uh, second appearance uh, on her program. Uh, that's uh, next Sunday. Uh, I can give you the uh, time in one moment when my, my screen moves over. Uh, in the meantime, between time, remember that Sunday, June 13th, uh, Dr. William Darity, uh, he'll be on Cree's program uh, next week. Tune in. She'll be constructive, counter-racist, evolving engineer. Uh, and also support Back of the Bus's blog as well, nonwhitealliance.wordpress.com, nonwhitealliance.wordpress.com. Uh, the cows will be back uh, on Wednesday. Um, persistence. This is someone I've been trying to track down for almost a year. Um, black male. Uh, he is the author of Pipe Dream Blues, and he is the author of Hitler's Black victims. Uh, he wrote a review when I was talking to him. I mentioned that uh, Raphael Sheck was just on the program. He's like, oh, I wrote a review for that book. Um, should be very constructive. Uh, Clarence Lusane. Um, Pipe Dream Blues is all a man. Pipe Dream Blues, excellent follow-up to this program because Pipe Dream Blues is all about how the war on drugs has been racism, white supremacy to the core. He even talks about how the kits and tools that they use to administer drug tests, even those are skewed to produce racist results uh, so that if you are a black person, you will be more likely to test positive uh, when taking these tests. His book, uh, Pipe Dream Blues, even addresses that. So that's uh, this Wednesday. Uh, I can give you the time on that, I believe. Yes, uh, that should be this Wednesday uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central, 11 a.m. Pacific, Clarence Lusane. Uh, we'll probably split the program to half on Pipe Dream Blues and the other half on uh, Hitler's Black Victims. But uh, that should be constructive. Uh, okay, though, everybody that called in, your line is open if you would like to share thoughts. Uh, we are definitely not hanging for the full uh, extra hour, but, you know, share whatever you'd like to say. Hey, Gus, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, Gus, it's um, it's funny you just mentioned that that uh, the upcoming author and his uh, 
his research into how the drug tests are even skewed uh, racially. And uh, it's just it, it struck a note because I failed a drug test uh, some years years back and uh, never, you know, never exposed to drugs, never touched drugs. And, you know, to this day I was baffled at how I could have failed a drug test. And I just think that's just... I'll, I'll definitely be tuning in to that uh, to that broadcast. But excellent show. Thank you. Uh, er, codified response. So what? Replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. But yeah, Clarence Lusane's book. Um, reading, reading. I, when I first moved to the West Coast, I bumped into a black male. And uh, he told me about this book, Pipe Dream Blues. He's like, you should read this book. It's great. It's great. And I was still very confused about white supremacy. But uh, he said, you'll probably have a tough time finding it, but it's excellent. And I went to a used bookstore in San Francisco. It's called Dog-Eared Books. If you're in uh, Bay Area, Dog-Eared Books is an excellent bookstore. Uh, I walked in and browsed around, and they had it, bought it, and uh, read it. I mean, I devoured it. It was. Inc- I remember the line that stuck with me. He talks in the early part of the book that if you are a white high school dropout, you are more likely to get a job than a black college graduate. And I remember reading that line, and I just remember it, it was like a brick hit me in the face when I read that line. Uh, but, yeah, Clarence Lusane, Pipe Dream Blues. I would highly encourage folks, uh, read that book if you can find it. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I thought it was real interesting when you had your uh, guest on that he spoke about many ways and gave facts about how uh, racism is practiced against black people in many creative ways. But he himself and other officials who are white people do not come up with creative ways to police the white people who do these things to black people. They are intelligent, smart people. And they have intricate detail on the smallest moon crater that orbits Saturn. And they know how to get there. And they know how to make the technology in order to make sure that the traveling navigation is safe for a return and photographs to be taken of those pictures of those moon craters which means that they have the more they have uh, an abundant ability to think creatively and stop this problem. And it is just obvious. It is totally obvious that they have no intention on stopping. They have a lot of intention on talking, but they don't want to help us. Unfortunately, I'm coming to this bottom line amongst all of them. What are your thoughts on that? I couldn't agree more. So I think like the most interesting thing on that note is just to reveal, based on just talking to them, is just reveal that they just don't want to do it. And the, the talking, I guess, develops into the, the wording that will come out of their mouth that would say, oh, well, yeah, you're right, sir. We we uh we don't have any intention stopping. I think that would be very beneficial for black people to hear because we believe in words and we believe in the uh the dialogue of what can happen for us, what they'll do for us. 
and it makes us feel good. But when that's all is said and done, we're crying all over again because they haven't stopped. And that conversation took a place 10 years ago. And here we go with the same problem all over again. In fact, it's, it's worse because we're sleeping with them and we're talking with them and they're doing this to you know us and our cousins in Texas, Florida, Atlanta, and whatnot, and we just get to hear about the stories, and we have no proof of any solutions. Yeah. Hello? Yes, sir. Oh, just making sure, guys. Yeah, this show was excellent, man. I like books like this. Um, you know, just breaking down the information and and uh, yeah, this 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 book gets my juices flowing. Hey, you spent some time in Hawaii, haven't you? Yes, sir. Don't buy this book. Let me make sure I get that out. Don't buy these books. If a white person wrote it, don't buy it. The upcoming show, you can buy Pipe Dream Blues, Hitler's Black Victims. Don't buy this one, though. Go to the library. Go to the library. Go to the library. Yes, I've been to Hawaii. Yeah. While he was talking, man, I I, I spent some time out there, too, a couple of years uh, on, 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 on Oahu. Yeah, man, I, I had to kind of, uh, you know, vision myself there, man, with some of the stuff he was saying, just to get to calm down, but <laughs> I was just like, man, some of the facts he was bringing out, what he said, he said, it's worse than the Jim Crow era, he said, during the Jim Crow era, we was getting in prison four times the rate of whites, he said, and now we're getting in prison seven times, seven times the rate of whites, so... You know, I know people be asking if they think you get if things getting better. Uh, you know, that's the facts right there. Yeah, a lot of information, a lot of information. Yeah. That's why I talk to white people. I mean, they are very informed. I, I agree uh, with Sonny. I, I do not believe white people have any intention of discontinuing the system of white supremacy, uh, none whatsoever. And, in fact, I agree with uh Michael Bradley. That's what I think about when I when I look at the uh, the so-called oil spill. Uh, when Michael Bradley was on the program and said that white people would uh, blow the planet up before they discontinue the practice of white supremacy. So, but I do talk to white people because they are very informed, and my hope is that non-white people who are a little more confused when they hear a white person breaking off information like that, that will challenge their conditioning and and perhaps clue them in as to what's happening on the planet, hopefully. Don't know if that happens or not. Right. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, what should be done about a people who for eternity will never stop mistreating black people on the basis of color and will never get rid of the system of white supremacy? What should we do then? That's why this book is so important. I mean, you read this book, and you get if, if this book is in your memory bank, and you, you're faced with somebody that you know could have done this, 
uh, uh, you know, could be, you know, benefited from this type of behavior. I mean, that's that's what this that's what this information is for. So you won't be talking that talking like you know we all human and this and that. You know, you got the facts. You let it's showing you right here what goes down, and they unrepentant. They don't care. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, when you if you if you if you wore your class, you shouldn't care. When it's when it's when it's when it's time for their justice. That's what I think. That's why I like this kind of this kind of material. Cuz it puts you in the right state of mind to do what you have to do when it's that time. That's what I think. I mean, he's kicking in Hawaii. I, I, like I said, I used to live out there. I mean, he's doing his research. He's in Hawaii. He's at a man. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful campus, man. You feel him? I mean, you know, I, 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 he's putting the information out there. Gus is bringing it to us, and uh, I just hope people are, I just hope people read this, read this kind of material, and get some understanding, because, like you said, they're not, they're not stopping. They got, they have a plan. What what Nelly Fuller said, uh uh tailoring, uh tailoring um Population tailoring. Yes, exactly. That's what's that's what's that's what's happening. That's why they don't you, you, they they know how to do they know they know the things that that we they know more than us. They know how to clean up uh spills and stuff like that. They they know how to have better technology and better energy. They're not doing it because they don't wanna do it. They want to get they they want to get rid of us first, and then they want to you know come with all the clean this and that. They know they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. So I just hope people read this. Yeah, thing. white people are extremely extreme. They are a extreme in their nature because they live in an extreme contrast. From their body to the solar system. First, their bodies are, are in extreme pain, so they have to compensate from that because they don't have melanin. And if you don't have melanin in the brain, then you're imbalanced. And in order for you to create balance, you have to change your environment to suit you. So they have changed and created an artificial system to compensate for their imbalance. But so, you know, based on my studies and and what I observe, and by their behavior, that is what they do. They constantly, constantly think of ways to refine the words and deeds to just simply compensate for that lack of sexual potency. That, that lack of that oomph that they don't have. That the thing that they desire the most that they can't have the way that we have it. So they mistreat. And they will keep on mistreating until until they get it. And if they get it, I doubt that they'll get it through the technology because I, nobody has ever pinpointed what melanin really is, the melanin aura that they don't have, but 
Yeah, they're deathly afraid of the sexuality of black males. That is the the most conscious thing that motivates them. Jealousy is a strong emotion, in my opinion. And many, many, many things have been done by, based off of that motivation. That emotion makes your brain hypersensitive to the people in your environment that you're afraid of. And based off of that drive alone, that will create a, uh, a hypersensitive towards doing the very things that will cause these people to be totally mixed up and disrupted and confused so that you can keep the focus, keep that focus off of themselves. Yeah, Gus kept ringing the cowbell when he was saying integration, because that's what it boils down to, man. That's when they created all of these laws, you know, integration, cowbell, and that's when all these laws, uh, you know, get on the books. And, and, and so, you know, crack cocaine and the profiling and the, and the whatnot. So they definitely have some type of... Uh, I mean, we can see that the uh, miscegenation slash integration. Um, that's when some of these. That's when a lot of these laws come about. And so, like when he was saying, "Yeah, I don't. I don't think white people sat down in a room and uh, planned this stuff out." <laughs> I wanted to say, "Yeah, buddy, keep keep your opinions to yourself." <laughs> You know, to keep your opinion, you know, but it was cool, though. But at the same time, I'm thinking in the back of my head, like, yeah, but Gus proved it, though, already, you know, with the, with, his, with his own material. Yeah, they they, they got to figure it out. You know, the result is the same. So, you know, the same result. So, you know, yeah, come on now. But, yeah, I find white people always kind of, they always say that. For some reason, I guess that's, that's, that's one of the... Uh, that's something that they have to say, is that yeah, I don't think nobody, uh, I don't think, th I don't think there was no grand and great conspiracy. Uh, you know, it just happened this way. Yeah, <laughs> come on, man, it's a plan. But yeah, Gus, uh, Gus proved it in his, uh, with the with the with his own work. So yeah, that's uh, that was good. I got to play devil's advocate here. Maybe, maybe there truly isn't a uh, a conspiracy. I mean, if it's just part of their nature, no conspiracy needed. Just going about doing their day to day thing, and while it appears to us to be a conspiracy, it's just a fact of life for them. Well, he said nobody sat down and planned these uh, plan that we're gonna you know, plant these these uh, things out. And Gus proved that, yeah, they do. I don't know about the word conspiracy, but, uh, yeah, they, they, they plant uh, the result that they wanted to see. Yeah, they planted. it. They sat down, mapped it out, and carried it out. You know, it is funny, though, uh, how we kind of... Uh kind of downplayed the uh, events that take place uh, on Yale, Yale's campus. I mean, even though 
some have dismissed it as just conspiracy theory. It cannot be argued that uh, some of the, uh, I guess, some of some world leaders in this case, I guess, in this part of the, the world, uh, are definitely members of those societies that that come from Yale's campus. And I just thought it was pretty interesting how it was kind of just kind of downplayed. Um, so yeah, yeah, you're right. There's definitely there's definitely a conspiracy. There's there's some that may not be completely clued in on the conspiracy, but they all participate nonetheless for the same for the same ends. Gus, um, he really this this show when uh, when I was listening to it, I was thinking that Gus really, I don't know, he's on another, he's on. I mean, I don't know the way how calm he was and how how the interview uh, came about. It just, I was thinking like, damn, this is hard work right here. Gus is like this is. It didn't seem like it. It just sounds like a conversation, but. I was just thinking that that was some that was pretty hard work um getting this information out and uh, I don't know that's just a thought that I had this was this was some real work that was being done I mean talking the way about I look white, at it oh sorry no go ahead well I was just saying talking to a white man that lives in Hawaii <laughs> and uh teaches out there and uh him saying these things about what goes on in the prison system and him knowing about these things. I mean, it's just like, damn, how do you feel about your people? You know, it's, it's like, you know, what, like like kind of the one last caller asked, he kind of was like, dang, you know, like, what's up, man? How do you feel about, what? you know, how if you were the judge uh, of your people, I mean, how would you judge them after doing all this research? This is, uh, I don't know, it's good stuff. Just looking from my observations and, you know, just paying attention, it appears that white people dominate non-white people. And everything, and mean, so that means everything they say and do is for the purpose of, I can't say everything, but everything, their main purpose of saying anything and doing anything is for the purpose of dominating non-white people. Everything else they do is just extracurricular. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that right there. Uh, every word spoken while they're speaking to us is definitely for the sole purpose of maintaining and refining the system of white supremacy. Um, they always know what the bottom line is. And they are always extreme in doing that. Even a subtle conversation means that they are extreme because if they're always focused on racism, white supremacy, then they have to be extreme. And the evidence of that is based on the fact that it has been existing for quite some time and still exists today. And if it is going to, if they're going to maintain it and keep it in existence, then they never keep their eyes off the ball. And for a person to do that, that means that they definitely have to be extreme because you've got to consider all the factors. You may think of 
while they're practicing racism, white supremacy, that they're not having fun. They're extreme. They are having fun. The the sole uh, mindset behind all things said and done and all things learned from and by white people doing what they do, uh, you you have to have a different type of brain in order to make practicing racism, white supremacy fun. That's why we have to have a different kind of evolved brain to practice counter-racism at all times, and that's fun. You see, I didn't think that that would actually be fun until I started to do it uh, more frequently. And the more frequently I, I did it, the more clearer I was able to see uh, the the tightness of the relationship between black people and white people around me constantly. Every time I have an encounter with a white person, I always know, based on what they're telling me, that they're that they know that they're talking to a black person. You see what I'm saying? So uh, the information that I get from them, based on what they decide to tell me, is marginalized by who they're talking to constantly. So I just ask them questions. I would just add to that that not just when they not just when a white person is talking to a non-white person, but when the white person is talking to another white person too. It's for that same purpose, at least primarily maintaining white supremacy. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's how they sharpen and refine uh, ways of deceit, uh, long usage of uh, words and explanations to, to uh, talk around something that can be said so simply to a black person. Um, they're always learning from each other. They're watching each other while they talk to each other. I'll, I'll go and talk. Well, I won't initiate a conversation with a white person. I'll probably be purchasing something, and they'll be behind the cash register. And while I'm talking to them, I know I can, based on what I've experienced in the past, they listen. They're always listening. And they're always listening to uh, other white people talk to black people. And that's for the sole purpose of refining uh, deceit. Well, he said a third of black men will spend time in prison at uh, 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 these days. So, one thing I think you got to keep that in mind when you when you want to go to the club and and hang out with with with, with non-white people, black people in particular, and uh, yeah, a third of black males will spend time in prison. A third. And I guess that would be worldwide too, right? Oh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, guys. I, I got to throw this in there, um, Dr. Baruti. I, uh, I purchased um, his series uh, entitled Menticide. I, I highly recommend it. But uh, there's a there's a particular uh, portion of that series where he discusses uh, the prison, the imprisonment rate in uh, other parts of the world, and he discusses probabilities. And, and I mean, he's a sociologist, so he gets into all of the all of the percentages. But in other parts of the country, 
or other parts of the world, it's actually worse. So you take a place like Australia, where I think the non-black population is is three percent of of the country, or the or of the continent, but eighty-three percent of the prison population are people of color. The UK, England, no better. I mean, it's so yeah, it's 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 global. Absolutely. But yeah, Dr. Baruti's work highly recommended. I mean, the work, the uh, the DVDs, quality work. Um, I mean, perfect. I, I mean, I, I I'm buying it for gifts for people. It it will be their their birthday presents, their Christmas presents. Even though I don't celebrate that stuff, but I, I believe um, this is information that that definitely has to be widely disseminated. We really have no idea of what type of of war we truly are in. I mean, we talk about it, we're more informed than than a lot of others. I thought I was informed, but after after sitting and listening to Dr. Baruti teach and really break down the numbers, uh as non-whites, we shouldn't have our kids in their schools. We shouldn't have our kids watching their television. I mean, our sole focus if we are concerned and care about the future of of our people as a race of people or as as just people period that should be our complete focus i mean it, we literally as the uh, caller said when we go out to the club if you're going to the club you i don't know i sometimes i wonder if we're not if we're not even asking for what these people have in store for us. We got to realign our our priorities. We've been well trained. I just wanted to to throw in um Dr. Baruti, irritated genie, and now Dr. Perkinson, a white person, have all commented on how white people have sodomized and or engaged in homosexual activity as a means of practicing racism, white supremacy. You can add an and or encouraged non-white people to participate in so-called homosexual activity, even with other non-white people, as a means of practicing racism, white supremacy. You now heard three people say that. So anybody who thought that was crazy, didn't make sense, you've now even heard a white person say it and provide evidence of that. So... Think about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I have no illusions that uh, that type of mistreatment is definitely uh, one of the main tactics that they like to enjoy doing to black males as a means of how they feel inside. They feel small inside. So sexually humiliating a black male is compensation for how small they feel inside and how they can't measure up. So they have to reduce the measure of, of how they look at a black male. It's like a poodle to a pit bull or a poodle to a great dane. And um, as a matter of fact, 
my my personal experience with that was from a police officer who's a white male and he pulled me over i was i actually i wasn't in the car i was walking on the street and he he stopped his car in front of me he asked me to put my hands behind my back and as soon as i asked him why he pulled out mace and he maced me in my eyes i went to my knees he kneed me in the back put his hands on me cuffed me up and on the way to the ride when i got to the uh the actual jail itself without no question or, or anything else several police officers jumped on me stripped me down completely naked and dragged me into a cell so that was my encounter with the uh sexual uh tactic that they use But things are getting better, though, right? I mean, we're not getting whipped. No, they're not. Uh, <laughs> they're not getting better. Things are not getting better. Because that's just the tip of the iceberg right there. <laughs> I mean, but wait a minute. You're not getting whipped. You know, you're not getting whipped no more. I mean, this is not slavery days. I mean, isn't that when, an improvement? When you, can, when you compare pepper spray in your eyes for about five hours, and you think about when your mother whoop told you to pull your pants down and whoop your bare butt. The pain that lasted from the whooping did not last as long as the mace directly to the eyeball. But whipping, if they were to whip, that would be an obvious. It would be. It would just be too obvious to people. But mace. It's not so obvious to people. You know, it's a refinement from the whipping. They have to refine their mistreatment. So they went from the whip to the mace. And they went from the mace to the paintball, to the hard little balls that they use when they shoot you. They went from that and they went to tasers. You see? So they refine their ways of hurting you physically. And one of the main ways that they hurt us physically is by the uh, the deprivation of depriving you of things. When you ask for things, when you go into a store, they'll direct you to what you ask for, but they don't give you what you need. You see? You always get something short of what is due to you, and that's hurting you. You know, they're, and that's cruel. So they're very smart when it comes to cruelty. You see? And it's good to face the pain of talking about it. Because by facing the pain and talking about it, we're able to deal with it physically and emotionally. Well, I'll tell you, for me personally, I mean... Me talking about it was 100% better than me not talking about it because if I didn't talk about it, maybe I would have taken that out on one of you. I would have taken that out on a, a black female or I've probably taken that out on a kid or myself or a white, you know. So the the thing is, is to the when I understand what's going on, when I talk about it 
ask questions and get different types of information from people to piece together my limited knowledge of what's going on around me, the more that I learn, the different my conduct outside of my resting spot becomes. I do different things based on how I've been treated. And I try not to mistreat other people based on how I've been treated, especially black people. Would you say it is difficult, though, like just try, dealing with the victimization that you get every day as a black male, that it is difficult sometimes to avoid or to it is difficult to be courteous with other black people, victims of white supremacy, to treat them correctly, that that's tough sometimes? I think it is tough if the person that you're dealing with has limited knowledge of what's going on because they're going to be insensitive, short. They're going to say something crazy or stupid that doesn't have nothing to do with what's going on. Or, you know, they're going to be insensitive and laugh. Now, based on those type of people, you know, I don't I don't know what anyone else's experiences have been when they try to seek counsel from another brother. But, you know, looking at these people and, and being able to judge for myself who's who, you know, and reading people, being able to read people and, and know that they're not going to have the type of understanding that I'm going to need when I decide to tell my story. So I stay away from them, far away, and I seek counsel for the, from those who I suspect will understand me more. And they have usually been older black males. I'm not saying that they were my friends at the time, but I, I took a risk, and I just decided to open up my mouth and just started to talk to them. And, you know, they turn around and say, I understand. And they had the same stories that I had. And I was able to uh, really, you know, get open and get honest about what happened to me. And the funny thing about it, man, is that most of these people didn't come uh, in the form of my family members. These are just people, this is just certain people out in, out in the world strangers it's unfortunate but you know what I'll take it wherever I can get it because I need it would you say that uh, being in that position of, of taking it from wherever you can get it that as a, a black male or really as a, as a black person period that does leave you in a vulnerable position absolutely but I'm, I'm willing to be in a vulnerable position because I'm a risk taker. I'm, I'm willing to take that risk to learn something I've never learned before. Because I ain't learning nothing by doing the same thing I've always done. Because I'm going to get what I always got. So, yeah. I remember one time I slept outside with a homeless dude who we hit it off, man. We just... I was talking to him, he was talking to me, we were talking about life, and we were just getting open with our situations and whatnot, and you know what, I just kicked it with him all night. 
I understood where he was coming from and understood where I was coming from. Next morning, gave him a dollar. I was on my way. And guess what? About a year later, I was stranded downtown. I didn't know how to get home. I lived miles away from home. And the same dude gave me money to get home. He was still homeless, and he gave me money to get home. He was a black male. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but I'm saying if I did not take that risk, how would I have ever known? You know, black males really want to help each other out, but we have no means to do so. But I suspect if we did, we would. And I believe we would because of what happened to me. We angry at each other when we walk up and down the streets because we don't really have much to give to each other. But if we try to follow the logic and find things to learn and, and, and try to just get as much as we can from what we from any source that we seek, it's going to be good, it's going to be bad. But we will take, you just eat the meat and spit out the bones of what people tell you. And based on, you know, the little, the little knowledge that you get or learning how to do something constructive, you're able to help somebody else with what you've learned. You know, when I got locked up, I learned how to cut hair while I was up in jail. You know, I did it for eight months. And when I got out, I'm over here cutting people's hair, you know. So. You know, people, people, people from the hood or whatever who didn't have enough money. So I meet them halfway. They meet me halfway. And I never got into any problems with none of them. Because every time I came around them, I did something constructive for them. And they did something constructive with me. And I kept it moving and they kept it moving. I never hung around nobody just to hang around nobody because I already knew. I'm all, I've been knowing that that's going to cause problems. I've already known a few people that got shot up just because it was hanging out by cops and other black people. So that's a no-no. Thank you for uh, sharing, Sonny. Um, I know as a black male, a lot of us, uh, we've been severely abused uh, by the system of white supremacy and uh, try as hard as we can to, to hold some uh, shattered bit of pride and, and dignity together. I know it can be tough to, uh, you know, share how you have been uh, abused and mistreated uh, under the system of white supremacy. Um, thank you again for sharing. Um, we have about white people have allowed me another like five minutes. Um, if you all want to share anything, I do have the time for Cree's program now. It's uh, 5 p.m. Eastern, uh, 4 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Pacific, Sunday, June 13th. Uh, that'll be with uh, William Darity, Part 2, uh, next Sunday, Counter-Racist Evolving Engineers. Uh, but we have five minutes. Yeah, Sonny, I wanted to thank you, too, man, because uh, I'm somebody that's against, uh, like, therapy and things like that. But what I've noticed about just what you guys said is that I got a lot in common with, <clears throat> with with what you said, so I mean maybe that's a uh, a good thing, because I heard a lot. Yeah, of it is a good thing. 
Yeah, we got I mean, not what, what happened to you is, is, is a good thing, but it's a good thing that we talk about it because black males ain't trying to tell each other their business like that because we are still trying to put uh, a big brick wall around our emotions. If you're strong enough to express your emotions, you're going to grow because we all got them, and our emotions are here to serve us, not the other way around. But go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, I just think the the commonality, you know, that's that's I don't know. I feel something about the the the, the common story that you told, and I, I, and I, I'm younger than you, but I I I um got the same same kind of things uh, that I. Happened to me, especially like when you're talking about the homeless guy and stuff like that. Yeah, I've done that before, and uh, I never talked to nobody about it, but uh, it's pretty interesting. We have a lot in common, uh, I think, as black males, we probably don't really know. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, let's say, for instance, you told me that story about you and the homeless dude, right? And um be, uh versus talking about the same old things that we usually talk about when we together as boys. Now they cool because we're interested in sports, we're interested in females and whatnot. But how often do you tell stories where you where you serve somebody and somebody served you? That's cool because you will once you start to uh talk about things you've never spoke about before, then you learn more than you've ever learned before because the person listening to you can think differently. You're giving them the benefit of thinking differently. And we've been taught and programmed to shut our minds off, shut our brain computers off, and not get honest with each other. And the more that we are honest with each other, you'll find your circle getting smaller and smaller and smaller for the better. Because the people who will stick around are the ones who are going to be most beneficial. Because they, you know, they'll be open too. Yeah, and that's pretty much what happened with me. I used to uh, have a lot of so-called friends, tons. But it got smaller. Once we got older, it got smaller and smaller based on what people were doing. And uh, those who stayed out of jail (laughs) are the ones who didn't hang around black males. And, um, you know, and it's logical because black males are people who are hunted. They hunt for us and they scream for us. Yeah. Females in prison equals more black females to be taken by white males. They're black females. They are trying to keep us separated. And they're very successful at doing it because we haven't gotten it yet. 
60 seconds, 60 seconds. Excellent show. I just hope people uh, um, get the archives and just study, get the knowledge up. That's it. Place white supremacy with justice. Immediately. Uh, thank you uh, again for uh, sharing, Sonny. Uh, excellent example uh, of uh, countering racism and uh, willing to share about how we've been uh, abused, all of us, all of us. Thank you again for sharing, sir. We'll be back. Uh, oh, absolutely. We'll be back uh, Wednesday. Uh, replace white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Um, yeah, that'll help this time. Right on. Kyle signing out. Thank you all. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.